0: Pacific, an audio podcast distributed via the internet that discusses three feature-length motion pictures that share an unlikely or obscure connection. I'm Doug, and my favorite horror movie soundtrack is Suspiria.
1: I'm Darren, and my favorite horror movie soundtrack that isn't Suspiria <laughs> is uh, <laughs> is Denny Elfman's Nightbreed.
2: Ooh. And I'm Steve, and uh, my favorite, and I'm going to get ludicrously specific, horror movie Track uh, is uh, Reagan's theme from Exorcist to the Heretic, as composed by Ennio Morricone, (laughs) which is a terrible movie with an amazing soundtrack.
0: I appreciate nerd. how you usually go like, give seven answers to a single question, and instead you've gone subspecific on this one, which is fantastic. <laughs> when it to music... Nerd, 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 nerd. Well, When it comes
2: but to it, music, I, I normally have a lot of choices, but on that one, it was pretty easy to narrow down to that one specific track, and it's, it's fantastic, so...
0: Fair enough. Hey, and uh, I should note that we're still in a level four lockdown here in Auckland, but it sounds like... Um, There's been some groundworks at uh,
2: one of our houses because it doesn't sound like you're in the well anymore, Skeet. So that's good. No, funnily enough, Uh, uh, one of my podcasters uh, sent me a microphone because um, I was down the well for some time with my shitty headphones that I'm still wearing to hear you guys. So you're probably coming through sounding worse than you actually are. But uh, I appreciate it. Thank you very much indeed. Uh, You are welcome. uh, And our listeners are probably
0: grateful as well. And um, (laughs) so do you want to explain why we're talking about horror movie
2: soundtracks? I will indeed, uh, because today we are discussing three horror films by first time feature directors that Doug owns the soundtrack to on vinyl but has not seen before this episode.
0: Ooh, I have. <laughs> <you laughs> it's a very complicated way of saying I have a problem, but um, I, uh, a few years back I did get into buying um, vinyl for a little while and um, specifically had this idea that I was going to DJ and play horror uh, soundtracks uh, and off vinyl. And I accumulated quite a few. And then um, there isn't a lot of demand for that as it turns out. (laughs) Uh, And I'm not a great self promoter. And I also didn't have my own turntables. So the, I I did do some um, world music DJing, which was super fun at um, golden dawn back when that was all around, but I never lived my horror movie night DJ dream. Uh, But this isn't the really the next and best and the thing either.
1: We're against you, Doug.
0: Would that be about right? <laughs> what were against me?
1: The, your, the odds and your resources were against you. Yes.
0: <laughs> but, but common sense was against me. There was a lot against me, really. Um, and not, not much going for me, except this relentless pile of vinyl, which was very heavy to carry and is increasingly useless because, you know, you everybody just expects you to play things off Spotify now anyway and not bring 70 pounds of vinyl to your uh, DJ gig. So, um, but before we get into these three iconic... Uh, soundtracks warning iconicity may vary from person to person Um, I know it's only been a few days since our last one uh, record but I get the impression that uh, that hasn't slowed down anyone's viewing so shall we talk about what our uh, lockdown viewing has
2: consisted of I think that's a good idea and I think I'm going to throw it straight to Darren because I know he's probably watched more movies than both of us put together
1: All right then (laughs) <laughs> um, yeah, I, uh, that seems fair. <laughs> and I, I have seen a, a an eclectic mix. Um, one of the the first ones I watched um, was uh, *Mel which ah,
3: right. is
1: yes, the um, that's the film by the same director as *Daughters of Darkness*. Is it Harry Kimmel or?
0: Something like that. Uh, yeah, I'll have to pass on that. Although I have, I can Google food that while you keep talking.
1: Fair enough. <laughs> and it is a, um, it's an experience. Uh, Harry Mary Kummel, nineteen seventy-one. Harry Kummel, I'll never doubt myself again. And so uh,
0: <laughs> let's not go that far.
1: <laughs> <laughs> okay, I <I'll> won't. <work. laughs> it's um, it's a a weird grungwynell um crazy pants movie um 1971 it has um orson wells as a um dying patriarch who's in a um a house full of people who um want his um wants his money and um, and just uh, a lit, dreaming of a, a world where he is dead and gone and they can live free. Um, a lot of the actors are um, playing a farce, essentially. A, a lot are playing um, right to the rafters, and, and others are in a, um, a more thoughtful, um, nastier horror movie. And the whole thing is quite un-understandable un- and it, once again it proves that you don't have to actually understand what's going on in order to enjoy a movie or love mm. a movie so I really right. got a lot out of this film but it is it's crazy and um, and the performances are so
2: varied <laughs> <laughs> It's, I, uh, that I, I looked it up quickly while you were talking about it, and uh, the plot synopsis on uh, Wikipedia simply says, The plot remains obscure to the end. And Nielsen of <laughs> the BBC gave the movie two out of five stars and called it bizarre, lurid, and baffling. It's
0: all that, of those That's things. a two star rating and a five star review. <laughs> exactly.
1: <laughs> and um, Susan Hampshire, who I, I don't know if um, you've, uh, she's a British actress. She plays um, three very distinct characters, all with quite different levels of depth to them as well, and um, she's awesome. and I remember her from, uh, uh from your sort of uh, mum and dad fair of Monarch of the Glen, the TV show with Richard Briers. That is. Uh, and um but I've well, she's in baffled
0: it. with uh leonard nimoy she's the uh expert in extrasensory perception in that film
1: oh wow okay it's uh, mm-hmm. i mean this one has her um uh it's um fully naked in one part it's uh, which was was quite it i was baffled i was right. <laughs> <laughs> <hopefully> so um <laughs> But she's I, I she thought there was a sensory great.
0: perception joke coming up there. <laughs>
1: <laughs> nope, there wasn't. Um and she was she was awesome. There was some great performances in this movie. There was also some weird and um almost vaudevillian performances as well. It was um but it's tremendous, and I um It's not for everyone, certainly, but it's definitely, definitely for you, Doug, and possibly you, you Skeets. But um, right. um, yeah, it's it's. There's no way you could have thought that this is the same person who did Daughters of Darkness, which is a great, great movie. It and does. I still have
0: haven't seen great- that one, and it's on Academy, so I need to check it out.
1: Yeah, I mean, I've got the 4K um, Blu ray of it, so maybe. Oh, I'll uh...
0: be right over. Oh, God. Judging did my drive past Cornwall Park today, I wouldn't be the only person who'd change level four into level fuck it if I did it. But,
2: uh, <laughs> <laughs> oh, we ain't getting out of here anytime soon, are we?
0: <laughs> no, we aren't. No, we aren't. Not as long as people keep showing up at public parks, not wearing masks and walking right by each other. But anyway, this is ludicrously specific, not
2: That's right. the other podcast. we a haven't... rant from time to time. I have a rant at okay. least once an episode, so you're allowed to have a rant as well. Fuck those, those people. people.
1: Back to Perseus. one thing that I haven't mentioned is it also has some really well-crafted, creepy moments. It's, um, it's, it's just got so much in this movie. It's, uh, I highly, highly recommend it.
0: I'm sold. Um, now, unfortunately, um, you saw it on Cinephobe, right? Which is Cinephobe.tv. Is that true? Um, well, I tried to. but uh, Yeah, this my- is my problem with Cinephobe is they have amazing programming, but it always craps out on me.
1: Yeah, the connection was, um, was a bit spotty. So I, um, I knew, uh, because that's where I downloaded it from uh, about two, three years ago, that um, Rare Film, the website, has it. It's the Cave of Forgotten Film. There's a whole bunch of Rare movies on there. And you can stream it directly from there, or you can download it. So mm-hmm. I streamed it with no problem whatsoever and watched it during the same time as the other one, and it's a director's cut version. So I think it's a little bit longer.
2: Yeah, there's, bit there's two cuts, instantly. apparently a hundred minute one, which was the original release and then a 120 minute long director's cut, according to what I just started uh, my instant research yeah. on there.
1: And that's definitely the one I saw. And it's just a little apparently hard to believe, but it's a little bit subtler in <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> the way it puts things across.
0: Cool. I'm going to sneak in with my one of my viewings because it definitely fits into uh, Cinema WTF, which uh, uh, was something that I snuck in actually at 1.30. I I'd planned on um, watching something to talk about on the show because I haven't had a lot of time and I've talked about some of the stuff that I have had time for elsewhere on Critics and Cars, Staying Home and what have you. But um, I've been hearing a lot about a short film from the early 80s called Possibly in Michigan, which is – a weird little uh, horror film made by a woman called Cecilia Condit that uh, was lost to the mists of history and then started going viral. Um, it is on YouTube. It, and also I believe the filmmakers Vimeo. So it's perfectly legit. Um, it is like basically a woman drank a vat of the swimming pool from boarding house and decided to take make a 12-minute musical comedy about cannonball uh, cannibals that's also a horror film. Um, a musical
1: it, I'm, I'm comedy sold would have been interesting, too, but um, you've, you've got me. <laughs> it
0: is, yeah, it is, it is, and the thing about it is that what happened is that a few years ago, some people started, came upon it on Reddit, and it's this perfect mix of really well-made in a camp register... Using a very low budget and to executing a very specific thing, vision with tools that you know might might have been hip for about a you know, solarization and all those kind of weird VHS effects and other things. Um, some very arch wit it's obviously made by somebody who's intelligent who's doing things a bit campy but also there's moments that maybe have intent might have been intended to play a bit more seriously that have aged poorly but also there's these songs that pop up including a song about a woman who puts a poodle in a microwave oven and um so initially reddit discovered this and then um Somebody picked it up for TikTok. And so this 1981 piece of video art that was funded by the NEA and completely forgotten, uh, if you Google around it, you discover became a big TikTok hit. And there may be people going, it's like, yeah, what don't you hang out on TikTok? And it's like, No, I know it exists. Um, <laughs> but uh yeah, so that that's uh yeah, I definitely uh if you there's two kinds of people during lockdown: people who have lots of time and people who have very little time. And those who have little time that need a aperitif to c- clear the brain and their via their eyes, and that want to capture like the spirit of watching um Night Train to Terror at three thirty and trying to make sense of it. This is about as close as you'll get. And you can right, achieve it in twelve minutes. 12 <laughs> That's minutes. Great. Yeah, and, you'll, and, you'll be you'll be there in six minutes. You'll be <laughs> scraping the walls trying to escape an eight, and you'll be in uh, catatonic acceptance by ten.
2: <laughs> okay, and Doug will be sending us the link to this, and I will be putting this link up on Twitter once uh, this episode airs because uh, we we both have to see this film. I think so. <laughs> yes, oh, you gosh, do. Gosh, yes, fantastic. Well, since we're on a theme of uh, cinema, WTF, uh, I can talk about the one I was going to talk about because oddly enough, it fits the the theme somewhat. So ludicrously coincidental, I guess, is our episode title <laughs> today. Because uh, uh, back last Tuesday, we've been in lockdown for the first week, and when you sell alcohol uh, in Auckland in the certain parts of Auckland, lockdown means you get to meet everybody because everyone comes in and we stay open uh, and using. Trying to keep social distancing among people that are coming in desperate to get a bottle of Jack Daniels before the um, stocks run dry, which I will point out they won't. There's a lot of it around, but it doesn't stop people. So after a week of it, I needed something just to um, take my mind off the situation outside. And I went with a rewatch of a movie we saw some years ago, uh, the movie Detention.
0: Aha. Uh-huh. Oh right. I've yes. never seen that. That's Joseph Kahn, right? Joseph Kahn. So
2: Joseph uh, Kahn, music video director by trade. So he's got I think hundred and forty seven credits on the IMDB and two of them are features. Uh, detention from two thousand eleven. Oh sorry, sorry actually he did Talk in two thousand four, detention 2011 Oh Yeah, Talk bodies two thousand seventeen. I, I tried watching Talk years ago and I just I mustn't have not been in the right mood for it because I love car chase movies, but it just it bludgeoned me with dumb the first 20 minutes until I gave up. So I'll, I'll go back and try it again, but it's um, it. no, that's, it's appeal. That's
0: shot. what it's, it's literally what it does, but it's just, um, I, I think now if it's been a while, I think some of the early 2000 style is so kind of past date now that it's become its own thing.
2: Oh yeah. Yeah. I've got a movie from the year 2000 I'm going to talk about, which has, uh, is painfully 2000 coming up, but this one, 2011, uh, I watched this one, uh, I think it was, yeah, it was on Prime, so it's, if you've got a Prime subscription, it's on there. I absolutely hate the description on Prime, because it says, simply, a killer frightens a group of teens during their senior year of high school, which is...
1: Oh, um, sign me up.
2: Yeah, I, it's really going to get people going to a movie, which is, basically, that's about one-eighteenth of the movie, is a killer frightening a group of teens. It but what is,
1: I pick up from that, Skeets, is that clearly there's going to be a um, a human fly and a time travel bear. That's exactly. what I picked up from that the, this description.
2: This oh. does not do that justice. I mean, it, because it's <laughs> there is an awful lot going on in this movie. It is, you know, I, I sat down and I actually, went, you know, you know, I'm I, not late. I, I sat down and, and played it with my wife, and she'd never seen it before. And I was thinking, this movie, is it gonna be her style? Because it's very music video y it's but within ten minutes she was having them ball. because it's just got such a good sense of humor to it. I mean, it's literally mm-hmm. the Breakfast Club meets Scream, meets about three different time travel movies, and then it all gets crammed together with some amazing, you know, CGI work that actually fits the movie, isn't isn't kind of out of there CGI. It's just it's a really earnest CGI that makes you believe in it, even when you're looking at wow. a time-traveling bear being abducted by aliens. It is, um, <laughs> as I say, it's as as I always say, I'm not going to try to describe the plot, because that plot list does not dis- define it at all, but um, it is a lot of things in that movie, and if you like watching a movie and just really getting surprised as to what twist this thing takes, you're absolutely going to love this one. And I've i seen it, well, we probably saw it about five years ago, I think, and it's been on the back of my head ever since that I had to rewatch it because I wasn't sure I really got everything the first time around. That I hadn't I there was so much happening in it that I, I hadn't appreciated all the little minor tweaks and I really loved it the second time around. It's a fantastic film.
0: Well, that sounds like a good surprise to look forward to. I just won't um just nobody tell me if there's any time traveling bears in that film because I never <laughs> would have seen that coming.
2: <laughs> <laughs>
0: definitely not. Definitely not. All right, Darren, what's your number two?
1: Okay, number 2 is uh, a a um, a film from the late 70s with uh, George Siegel and Jane Fonda. It's Fun with Dick and Jane. Ooh, I've always meant to see that. It's fucking awesome. It's It is um it's so it, it's so very very funny. And um it's the simple plot line is um you've got uh, dick and jane married with a kid they're living the suburban dream he um uh dick works for um um uh, works w- w- in a company that um outfits nasa so um it's so they um, they look after um, after things there. So he's he's going really well and then he all of a sudden gets um, gets fired from his job by Ed McMahon who um, who's, who's really really good in this film as well. And after uh, trying to make money, both um, both Dick and Jane trying to get jobs and not doing very well at it and they're still trying to live beyond their means, they uh, decide to rob banks uh, or well not just banks but just to uh, rob various shops and places as long as they're insured that's fine and they'll make their money that way and it's freaking hilarious
0: now this was remade in the 2000s with jim carrey and Taylor leone or something wasn't it is this Yeah, yeah, yeah
1: apparently it's not very good and um I was so impressed by how funny this film is, but the, the real surprise is how funny Jane Fonda is. I would say she's the MVP. Right. And, um, and I was, I've seen her in comedies, but I've never seen her play the, the real comedic role. And she is so good in this.
0: I hadn't realized it was a, another another um, Ted Kotcheff film as well. Who's, um, has one of those really wild? Um, you know, he's done everything from *Weekend at Bernie's* to First Blood* to *Wake and Fright*.
2: Mhm. Yeah, <laughs> he gets around. It's a very, very uh, sort of uh, CV to have, I'd have to say, when you have going. Oh yes, yeah, well, split done, image done as well.
0: Yeah.
2: Oh yeah, that's 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 definitely you. you can you can say he's not been typecast in any way, shape, or form. So. <laughs>
1: And it's just so—it's just a deliriously funny movie. It is really—you get caught up in what they're. It takes about ten or fifteen minutes to get going, but the the comedy works so well, and um, it's—and you just get caught up with them, and you're—you want to take that ride and uh, rob banks with them. It's really, really good. <laughs>
2: Nice. Does Ed McMahon play a bit of a dick in this movie, or just going kind of very sh- he, much? He, yeah, oh, it's yeah. amazing because he he's he's so known for his comedy and being a you know comedy sidekick, and then he's been in Slaughter's Big Ripoff, where he's just a complete bastard, and he plays it so well in the in a black exploitation. He's just he's just a repellent, so he can definitely do that well. So when you said he was fired for that, I thought yeah, I bet this is him playing Ed McMahon the bastard role.
0: He's, which is so uh, funny, because those of us who grew up in America, which is actually only me, um, <laughs> he was, you know, he was Johnny Carson's on and I'd never actually seen him in anything dramatic until I saw The Incident, which I mentioned uh, a podcast not too long ago, which he's fantastic in as, as a very weak character, like not weakly written, just, you know, a character who is weak and um, thrown into this horrible situation, but I'm... Um, yeah, it's fascinating when there's these people that you've known just as one personality, um, and it's like, oh, yes, they have this whole hat past as a, you know, multifaceted actor.
1: Absolutely. And with Ed McMahon, for, for a New Zealand listener, um, it's Ed McMahon was, uh, certainly to me, was known as Dick Clark's co-host for Bloopers and Practical Jokes.
2: yeah. yeah. It's, it's, it's definitely quite a long long stretch from there to, to him playing the complete bastard and slaughter's big ripoff, which, you know, as I say, first time I saw that, it just threw me entirely. But I mean, and you he look was, at his, his IMDb, and so many times he just plays himself. He's, in, he's appearing himself in everything from Chips to, to uh, I think, uh, The Simpsons, of course, he turned up as himself. Being the Bewitched movie, he turns up as himself. It's just, by the end of his career, he was just, you know, we need Ed to do a, carry, a cameo as Ed. So. <laughs>
1: Well, he was um, in um, the the Larry Cohen movie uh, that starred Alan Arkin, who we mentioned in last week's episode of Half Moon High. He played Alan Arkin's, um, uh, sorry, Adam Arkin's um, father in that.
2: Full, full Moon High, I think.
1: So, yeah. Full Moon High. Yes. Yeah, you only watched <laughs> half of it,
0: didn't you? <laughs> full, full half, Alan Adam. What's the difference? <laughs> I'm paying attention. Oh, wait.
2: Yeah. We don't ludicrously specifically uh to check all of our facts there. Yeah, that's your job, listener.
0: <laughs> We're doing our part to improve the economy by cr- job creation. Um, <laughs> I um, am getting at the tail end of this NTIFF challenge that I uh, set for myself. And I, I, it's actually just a bit of a um, struggle now because some of the films that I have left are a bit weighty, and i wasn't. I'm just not been in a headspace for them, which is silly because it's a it's supposed to be a fun challenge, and I should just treat it like Skeet does and just ignore anything <laughs> that I don't want to do.
2: Um, yeah, pretty much.
0: Yeah, um, but one of the things I'm really glad I did, uh, one of the categories was to pick an Asian director and choose three films you hadn't seen. And uh, originally I chose Johnny Toe, and then I had some trouble sourcing decent qualities of some of the films I wanted to see. And um, I looked on my shelf and I realized that Criterion's little um, side label Eclipse had put out a five DVD set of this guy, Koryoshi Kurahara, um, which I picked up about eight years ago, watched one of the films and then promptly forgot about the box set. And I'm like, oh, well, this would be <laughs> good time to check in and see what this dude's all about. And um he's a really underrated forgotten Japanese director who was surprisingly apparently quite a commercial success at the time. Uh, And I say surprising because there's quite a um, French new wave kind of energy to some of the films, although they're not as, um, you know, completely experimental. They're still quite grounded in narrative, but some of the cutting and some of the other style is very uh, edgy for the time. Uh, And, so the films that I watched, there is one called Black Sun, which is a very intense uh, drama comedy about a black GI and a jazz obsessed um, Japanese homeless guy who, as as a neer do well drifter type, and they wind up um, to call it a buddy comedy is distorting the meaning meaning of both buddy and comedy, but gives you a sense of it. Um, Uh That, that one has some very awkward racial politics and um, I wouldn't just blindly recommend, but I think I would blindly recommend I hate, but love, which I just watched the other day, um, which is the only color film of his I've seen. And it's, um, it's one of those titles that doesn't really immediately, Register, you know, but as soon as you watch two minutes of the film and you realize that it's about a couple um, and that describes their dynamic and that everything about the film is going for the rafters, uh, one of the characters is a media personality uh, who two years ago uh, hired this woman to be his manager and they fell in love, but they've remained chased but are still in love but also he's a pain in the ass and she tries to corral him and you know and all this stuff and so they have this very um it's not even passive aggressive it's aggressive aggressive uh, relationship <laughs> and 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 it just sort of it's you know and and it does um I often struggle with those kind of relationships in films. So I have a hard time pinning why this, why it worked for me here, other than it fully commits to both aspects of it. And you kind of get everything where everybody's coming from. And also just because the film in its first half moves so fast, you don't have time to reflect on it. It's mostly set over a very short period of time. Uh, and then in the second half, um, it takes a wild turn which culminates in a road trip across Japan in a beat-up jeep, which in 1962 took a long, bloody time. <laughs> <laughs> oh my! <laughs> and um, yeah, and and so it, it loses a little bit of. Um, ironically, when it hits the road, it loses a little bit of propulsion. But it also is one of the few Japanese films I've seen of that era that really cuts such a wide swath across japan at the same time you know i've seen films that are like you know from that era that are you know tokyo crime films or you know you have the ones that are set you know in very rural places or places that were heavily bombed and coming back but are still kind of these malaria ridden swamps but rarely do you see a film that cuts through all of that and you're just like holy shit all this is kind of going on at the same time um so yeah the, i don't know how available that is outside of the eclipse box set which you can probably import uh but uh yeah he's a filmmaker definitely worth checking out i have one film left now in the set which i'll just watch anyway
1: fair enough nice. okay over to you skeets
2: right well um i also continue the the not the international film festival one although i've kind of it's dropped off a little bit since uh, work's come along. I only really watched sort of four films in the last week and a half solo thing just because, you know, work has been basically kicking my ass on most days. So um, by the time I come home, I, you know, put a movie on and 15 minutes later, I'm falling asleep. But I thought I'd better go on to my golden bear winner. Um, and I looked up what the golden bear was. That was one of your challenges. And I didn't know any of those films. And oh, come I on. You've away. I've already seen that one, so that's fine. I, I, I have watched a Golden Bear, so I watched one that had a bear in it, technically, and, and of <laughs> it did have a bear in it. Uh, 1987's *Berserker*, uh, directed by that household name Jefferson Richard. Uh, oh, him! Who, yeah, he's a director of uh, 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 *Rigged* apparently, and *In Search of a Golden Sky*. That also apparently has a bear on it, according to the uh, the poster. So apparently, he works very well with Bart the Bear, who was his, his stunt bear in this film. Or just did one uh, long shoot and cut the footage into five different films. Very possibly. I, I haven't looked that one up yet. Uh stars so Joseph Ellis Johnson and Greg Dawson. And uh, and as you get down the cast list, you get George Buck Flower turns up.
3: Because uh, hey. of course,
2: George Buck Flower turns up because uh, it's set out in the wilderness. Although it's an interesting George Buckler. Remind me who's George? I don't remember who that is. George Buckler is a character actor of a million uh, western movies. Uh, he absolutely it is like, It's
1: he did a million movies. He never slept. He just went uh, from one film to the next.
2: You you'd recognize him with a picture, even though you probably. You know, oh
0: I yes, guess I do. Cool. I recognize. you looked him, him up. Yeah.
2: yeah, and he's he's just got a. Early films, but they're all Westerns. That's why they, what they say that Western guy. That's yeah, when fun. they live, to
0: be fair. Yeah. Before lunchtime, every yeah.
2: day. Yeah. This is the weirdest George Buckflower performance I've ever seen because it's the first one where he's attempting an accent. And for the first 10 minutes, I didn't know what accent it was. Uh, <laughs> it was kind of Louisiana, I thought, and then it became a kind of a slightly South African... And after about 15 minutes, I realized he was being an old Jewish man, which George Buckflower, I don't know if he was Jewish or not, but he never sounded like an old Jewish man. And he talked about the old country, and he never says what country that is. It could have been, you know, Bratislava or something, but he, he, does, he has long rambling conversations with one of the other characters, which apparently they improvised on set. Uh, well, meanwhile, the rest of the plot actually is and I'm quoting from Letterboxd, six young adults in the woods run afoul of a berserker, a Viking warrior who dons the fur and snout of a bear and is slain and turned by him. So it's um it's not high concept, I will say. Uh, it's late 80s slasher. So this is 87. So the slasher boom was 81, 82. they was just, you know, I think 30 to 40 slasher movies a year were coming out at that stage. By 87, they were trying some gimmicks, obviously. So they basically have... Not only a man dressed in a bear suit uh, attacking people; they also he can also turn into a bear for reasons that are never adequately adequately yeah, yeah, never actually explained. <laughs> halfway through a tequila, and I'm already stuffing my words up. Uh, they they throw in a lot of the the, the typical genre tropes. There's a lot of um, you know gratuitous nudity, and there's an, an extended sex scene, which unfortunately they also cut with an extended murdering of another character scene so you're cutting between two characters in the woods to a character who apparently was less than a minute's walk away getting hacked to death by a bear or hacked at least into kind of almost death because they find her later on and it's basically if you're a slasher fan you can't really enjoy that and if you're a boobies fan you can't enjoy the other one because they keep messing it up by cutting back and forth i'm not giving this a great review i'm only saying it because i watched it i'm not saying you should watch it at this point my review at the end of the day was if this movie was written by an actual bear, it would have made more sense. <laughs> okay. So, uh, yeah, treat with your own, um, With your, your mileage may vary. The um, one actress, Beth Toussaint, uh, is an amazing lookalike for Linda Hamilton. Uh, and so if you ever want to see Linda Hamilton in a sex scene in the woods while someone's getting mutilated nearby, you've got very specific tastes. But if this is the, definitely the movie for you.
1: All right. Well, okay. Uh, top now, that, Darren. <laughs> I will. I will top that. I will top that by prefacing that um, because uh, due to um, my ad uh, passing, um, Doug has very kindly taken on the uh, the other duties of um, uh, the, the three movies we're talking about, uh, Doug is going to be talking about Warning Sign, which was assigned to me, but um, I had very little time at the time we were trying to do the podcast to actually research that. So I say that so I can say that my final movie is actually the other six movies that I have watched. <laughs> <laughs> um, starting with The House on Carroll Street, which is a, a film that I've seen the poster of for years and just sort of written off as um, oh I don't really care about that movie it just doesn't look all that interesting. It uh, stars Kelly McGillis and Jeff Daniels, and it's uh, set in the um, set just after World War Two, and it's a Alfred Hitchcock light movie. Essentially, the director of Krull. From the hey. director, of, yes. P.T. Yates, the director of Bullet.
0: Yes, and Friends of Eddie Coyle and plenty of other films. I Absolutely. just love seeing from the director of Krull.
1: Yeah. Okay. From the director of <laughs> Krull, it's um, and it, it is a it's a very cool film. The um, it has a a really great, very Hitchcock feel finale. It's, um, has Mandy Patinkin, not really a spoiler as the bad guy playing a, um, a real almost Tony Blair, like bad guy, the smile, um, a politician, smiling assassin. He's, um, he just always cheerful and, um, quite witty, but, um, very, very dangerous. And it's a um, it's a very cool film, and the the lead is definitely Kelly McGillis. She is the main character, who's this um, reporter who uh, gets fired from life because she will not give up her um, uh, her sources in a congressional hearing, um, led by Mandy Patinkin. Um, um, and, and this uh, is in the
0: '50s, so this is the McCarthy era, House yeah. on american Activities, and all that, right?
1: Absolutely, and um, and then one day she is um, asking directions uh, to a to a house uh, to her new job, which is as a reader for Jessica Tandy's character, and um, and she asks it of a um, of a, a young German guy. And then she, when she is um, staying at Jessica Tandy's or working at Jessica Tandy's and just walking outside, she looks up and um, sees uh, the German guy in the window um, along with um, other Germans and um, Mandy Patinkin's character and, and very rightly gets the impression that something hinky is going on. Hinky is not a word used in the script. That's the word I'm using now. <laughs> so, and it's there was, a. There was a certain air of hinkiness, I'm assuming. Yeah, yeah. Absolutely. And it was a. Um, it's a really cool movie. It it's um, it, it really plays up the thriller aspect. There is a um, sudden nudity from Kelly McGillis that seems completely pointless at the time. But it's um, but it is then used um, against her, against her character um, in that same scene. So it's um, it actually makes more point and more sense to it. And it's um, it's just a um, a really cool film, and it has a great end.
0: Um, I'm quite so surprised that, I've never heard
1: of it. Yeah, well, I've seen the poster for years. But just never had any interest in it because it's Did just it a poster born New Zealand. I, I don't know. It's um, 88. 88. So that's um, very close to arachnophobia time, isn't it? What was that? 91? Ninety one?
2: 1990
1: 90. Yeah. Yes. yeah. So very close to arachnophobia.
0: Um, um, as an aside, and, have any of you seen An Innocent Man, which is Yates' follow-up? Because I just noticed that on Disney Plus last night. I never heard of it before either. But it's, it's got um, Tom Selleck in it. And and uh, I,
1: Murray Abram.
0: And is that worth watching? Yeah, um, I
1: saw it quite some time ago. When, um, I would have been about 13, 14 or something. Um, it is. It's pretty. It's um, It's one of those just sort of harsh... Um, prison movies there's uh, quite okay.
2: there I'm quite watching a, harsh prison movies at 14 does not surprise me and
1: it's um, quite a nasty shanking in there and <laughs> um, but it's a it's a good film I, I remember enjoying it but I've never seen it since
0: speaking of ludicrously coincidental the uh, DOP of an innocent man is William A. Fraker who also shot Exorcist to the Heretic
2: Hey! Look at that! All comes together.
0: Spooky.
1: Right now, I've got (laughs) I've got five more films to get on with. So the um, the girl cafe. That's um that was uh, written by Richard Curtis, starring um, uh, oh God, what's uh Nye um Bill Nye and Kelly McDonald. And it's a um it's. It's Richard Curtis actually being biting and clever and um, really witty, funny dialogue like he used to. It was a, a TV movie back in um, 2005, I think it was. And um, it's um, about a, um, a civil servant who's working on the G8 conference who nips out to um, a cafe and uh, meets uh, Kelly McDonald's character and um, just sort of an accidental meeting. He's um, trying to get a uh, a table at the cafe and there's no space. So he asks if you would mind if I sit down and they have a lovely kind of meet cute and it's um, it's quite witty fun uh, uh, dialogue all the way through However, it's the G8 conference and they're also talking about, um, about trying to stop poverty in Africa and trying to, uh, because, um, millions upon millions of children are dying every, every second, click, click, click. And so it has, um. It has some a real seriousness to it, too, which I think has played extremely
0: well. And I can imagine that's why they got the director of that, David Yates, to follow that up with Harry Potter and the Order of the Phoenix, which, you know, sounds exactly like the same film.
1: A hundred
2: percent. I do like that like uh, Bill Nighy's uh, 2005 ran The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, The Girl in the Cafe, and The Constant Gardener, one after the other. So it's... Um, yeah, it's the busy life of an actor and the busy life of a director, I guess, sometimes.
1: It's, it's nice to see that while you guys are listening to me,
2: you're bus- busily putting on <laughs> the... Typing away to pretend we know what we're talking about, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, the, the thing is, is that your um,
1: <laughs> David Yates um, also directed the um, the miniseries that Bill Nye was in that was made into a, T- a movie with uh, Russell Crowe, uh, what's that called? Um it's a brilliant, brilliant, um, state of, state of play. And, um, so, and Kelly McDonald's in that as well. So that, that kind of might be how all three of them were, uh, were pulled back in together. But yes, I highly recommend girl in the cafe. Now panic in the year zero oh. was yes, was my yeah. attempt to watch a pandemic film without watching a pandemic film.
2: Without really watching a film either,
1: so <laughs> <laughs> I I disagree. I was uh, I was really um, caught up in it. I and uh, enjoyed it immensely. Ray Milland directs and stars, and um, and it's a um, the about a, a family going away for a summer holiday in a camper van. and as they um, they've just Pulled out and they're driving away from Los Angeles. They see behind them a um, a, a flash of um, of white light, and it turns out that um, the enemy is attacking. And they never ever say what the um, who the enemy is. And so it becomes a story about um, Ray Milland surviving for his family, making sure his family gets through no matter what, and dropping his uh, sensibilities very, very quickly in order to survive. And it's a... I was very caught up in it. Have you guys seen it and not enjoyed it? Not a long time, I not not seen recently, it. but not recently.
2: But I did see it some time ago, and it never really fired for me. I don't really know why. Uh, possibly, I mean, you look at the casting. You have got Ray Maland, yeah, and he is always a great watch. And then you've got Frankie Avalon as a son, and Frankie Avalon, to me, is he's you know he's he's Frankie Avalon. I mean, you, you can't get away from the fact that he's a, a pop star turned actor that was always a middle of the road. Very
1: good in this, actually. He's, it's. Yeah, uh, and he plays. He, it's, um, there's a a great scene where he uh, he's told by his dad that he um, needs to get um, he needs to uh, protect the family and don't be afraid to shoot. And at one point he does, and he has a huge smile on his face after he's done it. <laughs> and uh, so Ray Milland takes him to task. So there's a, a there's nice little sadisticness too. Uh, to the character which um yeah there's a depth to this film that i i really enjoyed and um yeah it's it's a very cool
2: movie i may have to go back and revisit because it's been a long time and it didn't fire from me at the time but I mean you know how quite often sometimes you' watch a movie and 20 years later you run past it again and go oh yeah and then you'll suddenly find yourself drawn back in so i mean then those those 60s kind of the 50s or 60s poco apocalyptic films i mean there were some interesting ones I mean to me, the day the Earth caught fire is still the peak of oh, yeah. the, the end of the world films of the 60s because of that incredible I haven't dialogue. I've seen that. Oh, it's it's a fantastic film. This it's just got this incredible realism to it, and even in a fantastic sort of scenario. But the the dialogue that everyone is is super rapid fire for the for the 60s, and it's and overlapping Leo dialogue.
1: Pern, it's, Leo McKern yeah. is a standout in that yeah, movie. It's fantastic
2: in it, yeah. Mm. And it's, it's it's definitely well worth watching. But as I say, anything with Raymond London, I'll normally give a go because I mean, X, the man with X-ray eyes is is one of those classic B movies that that punches so far above its weight and is you know at times quite horrific near the end. So it's um, it is it's definitely I would probably go back and have a look at this again and just find out whether it was just me at the time or whether it's just not my type of movie because you're always going to get ones like that, of course.
1: Absolutely. Now I'm I'm going to blast through. Um uh, there's uh, two I've just seen, oh, and we've got some uh, some thunder overhead. I don't know if that was picked
0: up, but uh, um I, just, I as I heard something I thought that was somebody rolling a garbage
2: can up the driveway, but uh, 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 ominous thunder.
0: <laughs> well, it's uh, a,
1: someone rolling a garbage can up all of our driveways. <laughs> Simultaneously, so there you go. that's um, that's some work going on there. Um, uh, last night saw Green Fingers, which is a just a, a nice light little comedy about a um, Clive Owen as a, a prison lifer in a now open prison um, who develops green fingers and um, and is um, and has a, a great love of gardening. Which is fostered by uh, by Helen Mirren's character as well. So that's a nice little light film. Just saw Slither, a nineteen seventy three Slither. I saw that today off Cinephobe.
0: I've been meaning to check that out. Actually, I've heard great things about it. How is it?
1: Yep, it's it's really good. It's a Shaggy Dog story. It's um, has um, a great laconic performance from James Kahn a crazy, um, coked up performance from Sally Kellerman and a, a nice off the chain performance from, uh, Peter Boyle. Oh, it's, nice. uh, it's just, it's got a, a really lovely comic feel to it all the way through. Even the fact that it starts off with, um, I think it's James B Shaw who is a um an actor who I've enjoyed in a lot of films um suddenly getting shot up in his own house and then choosing to um to explode his house so James Khan can get away <laughs> wow. um, it's it still does it in a kind of light comedic way <laughs> it's um it's a great movie um, I really enjoyed it. But the one I really want to talk about is The Goodbye Girl, written by Neil Simon.
0: That's one and of those that, I've heard of but never uh, followed up on.
1: Well, that was a, a much Oscar-nominated movie. It's a basically a quite a simple little romance. It's uh, Marsha Mason and her um, 10-year-old daughter, uh, they're living with a um, they're living with um an actor who um all of a sudden um leaves and goes to Italy and so leaves them um in their apartment in his apartment which he decides to because he's such an asshole sublet yeah. to a friend and so kick in other words, kicking the uh, the 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 uh, Marsha Mason and her daughter out. It's um, the person they sublet to is um, is Richard Dreyfus, who is a um, a small time actor who is, um, has come to the apartment. Rather than um, make waves, he chooses to, um, to leave them in there with him. And um, it becomes just a, a lovely romance. And it's just, it is brilliantly witty, clever, funny, funny dialogue. It's, uh, Richard Dreyfus won the Oscar that year for the, for his role in it. And Marsha Mason was uh, nominated as was the script, as was the movie, as was the 10 year old daughter. So it was a huge, yeah. um, um, a, a huge deal. And it's such a lovely film. It's, um, it is equally funny and romantic. And uh, I have quite quite an affection towards it. It's something I will be uh, revisiting, I would say, fairly regularly, because it's a lovely movie.
0: Directed yes. by uh, Herbert Ross as well, who's done quite yes. a few. Uh, I think, didn't, did he do uh, California Suite as well, which is another Neil Simon, or am I mixing him up with somebody I else? I
1: think, um, because Marsha Mason's in that, I think.
0: Yeah, he did do California Suite, yes. Okay, that's why I'm familiar. And The Last of Sheila, Footloose, Secret of My Success, yeah, Wild. Uh.
2: Some great, great films. Unfortunately, I have some history with Neil Simon uh, movies uh, because back when I was uh, eight years old, I looked up the year, uh, I had a doctor's appointment in town and my mother took me in there. And because of Auckland buses back in the 1980s, we had time to waste, so we went to a movie. And because it was a daytime movie during, you know, outside of school holidays, uh, the only thing around was Only When I Laugh with Marsha Mason and Christy McNichol, which is a two-hour long, basically melodrama about a woman who's uh, had uh, come out of rehab and now has to deal with her best friend's problems and a needy daughter. And I was never more bored in my life. I can literally remember how (laughs) terribly bored I was at eight years old in a, basically a a weepy aimed at my mother. So, um, I'm sure this one's good, but uh, as I say, when I hit Neil Simon as a writer, I, I flash back immediately to only what I laughed because I didn't.
3: Uh. <laughs> I, think I, I, I cannot
1: recommend the goodbye girl it. enough. I, I think you would both enjoy it. I think you and Dawn would really love it. I think you and Sarah would really love it, Doug. It's a great movie.
0: It sounds like something I could talk her into watching. Um, do you have fifty three more films, or is it? I have stopped. Finish. Good, okay. because well, yeah,
2: um, I've only got one more to go. Oh, sorry, it was yours. Okay. I forgot who said it was.
0: It's technically <laughs> my. It's technically my turn. So I'll just quickly. Yeah, you go. Mention um, a film that I will not. I did not watch with my wife, who would not have wanted to watch it. Uh, Santa Sangre by Alejandro Jodorowsky. I. Um, it's been a curious omission because I love. Holy Mountain and got really obsessed with Jodorowsky after that film, even though none of the other films I've seen have quit, hit me nearly as hard as Holy Mountain. Um, El Topo I thought was interesting, but a bit unformed. Um, the Dance of Reality, I actually, which is one of his first autobiographical films I actually quite liked, but then his more recent Endless Poetry I didn't connect with as much. Um, Santa Sangre, for those I'd almost say it's the perfect introduction to Jodorowsky, um, except that it's so ludicrously confrontational, but but all his films are ludicrously confrontational. So it, I guess what I mean is that um, we, you know, there's some of us who every Saturday night are watching films together in Santa Sangra's, I think on 2B, I happen to have it on Blu-ray. Uh, so I watched it off that simultaneously with a bunch of friends. And it's a film that simultaneously pure uncut Jodorowsky, but also has a very clear narrative and through line and the themes are relatively interpretable amidst all the crazy stuff and but i mean it's it's the sort of film where you know if you don't like the story you're watching wait 5 minutes and if you don't like you know just um but it, unlike holy mountain it's not because it's going into completely different worlds it's just kind of building out this single story that has all these wild aspects to it from, um, a offshoot cult of Christianity that, uh, has a pool of blood at the center of their chapel to an elephant funeral to,
2: uh,
0: (laughs) an ongoing series of people who lose their arms. Uh, and I'm just sort of, there's a, the deaf mute, uh, character. I'm just scraping the surface. um, There's a whole subplot about one of the main character and his um, cohorts in whatever home they're in that look to be potentially Down syndrome or something else going on the town and having a less than wholesome night. Uh, If there's a button that you have that can be pushed, I'd put it at 60-40 that it will be pushed. Um, But there's also a real heart to it and a real kind of... Clear message about coming into one's own. I mean, it ends with a bloody Bible verse on screen. It's it's oh, it's wow. the mystery of Jodorowsky that he can be so nuts and so calmly, specifically committed to a worldview that actually connects with people in this spiritual yet perverse way and he's 92 and he's still going even though you know obviously we're not making films at the moment but he just had a film about his um psycho magic which is this kind of practice he has as a healer where he helps people confront their inner traumas through various rituals that may include being buried alive or what have you um and he does tarot readings he does them i got to see him in um paris a few years back 2019 and nicholas winding Reffen was there nicholas winding refin introduced the el topo screening and told the story about how he always gets his tarot read by jodorowsky before he does his films and um Reffin was trying to make it like you know we're basically the same and and Jodorowsky scoffed at him because Refn's this guy in this you know fancy suit that's immaculately there, and and Jodorowsky showed up for the you know screening of El Topo in like a beat up jumper and jeans, and it's just like totally actually proletariat, and like Jodor- uh, Refn likes to think he's proletariat bourgeoisie, but um, and and there is there is that weird mix of he's somebody whose head is totally out there, but at the same time there's something weirdly grounded that keeps it from. Mm-hmm. Floating off entirely and just being, like, uh, um, I don't know, the color of pomegranate. So there's other like kind of um, spiritual filmmakers that I've seen where it's just like, well, that's a lot of stuff that happened. Um, <laughs> you might still watch these films and be like, well, that's a lot of stuff that happened, but there's a commitment there, you know, and there's a there's a visceral link into it that puts it above, beyond putting pictures on screen. Kind of, I mean, Werner Herzog's kind of. Somebody who came to mind as well, in a way, although Werner's much more um, grounded in his spirituality. Uh, yeah, yeah, and that's me.
1: Oh, yeah, before cause... you go, um, Doug, before you stop, a, a request: Could you, um, because I wasn't, uh, I didn't tune in last night for that, and the blood spattered bride. Can you give a few thoughts on blood spattered bride?
0: Yeah, uh, it is. It is pretty good. I think. I don't think anything was really follow-up Santa Sangra. Um, it's a, a sometimes languid, occasionally uh, psychedelic um, story that's one of these sort of very cryptic, like, um, there's this new marriage, but also there's this woman from several hundred years in the past who there's paintings of, and it seems like she's in real life too, or maybe there's dreams, or are there? Um, and yes, there's moments of blood splattering. There's a a one icky rape scene, um, but mostly it's it's kind of a um, low key, not quite fever dream. There, most of it takes place at this country estate that's kind of a castle that has you know tombs from hundreds of years ago. That's near a beach, and so there's lots of wandering around there um yeah i i feel like it was probably better than the amount that i enjoyed it and i wasn't quite ready to key into it i feel like it's one of those coding kind of films that you know if you're if you're in the mood to kind of just like zone a little bit out in and out with the f- film that it works it's not it's not quite a um it's not quite narrative enough to really grab me moment to moment. And it's not quite psychedelic enough to take me on a trip, but it has elements of both of those. Gotcha. And it's the Camilla story, (laughs) Mm. which I hadn't known, but apparently it's a story that's been done many times. Oh yeah. By hammer quite a few times too. Yeah. So, um, look, I mean, I, I've never, um, uh, v- vampire films are not my, undi- I, I was about to say undying passion, um, you know, but va- vampire films, uh, you know, I'm fine with a good one, but it's not like something that I go out of my way to seek sure. out. So, I mean, I would say it's a must watch for anyone who's a vampire buff. Buff. It lives up to its name. Um, and it's, it, it, it's definitely, I doubt for anybody it would sink below interesting curio in terms of what they thought of it, and I imagine there's a few people who would really deeply connect with it. I still haven't seen Daughters of Darkness, but um a couple of people, it's by the same director, and I get the impression that that's a, generally considered to be a much stronger film, so it's if you haven't by, seen either. By Henry as, as well. Oh no, wait, sorry. We, I'm, we've i am we been doing this for so long that I have my directors mixed up, I think. Let me um, just check who the director is, I thought, no, it's Vincente Aranda, so why did he say Daughters of Darkness? Um, I swear that um, the person who told me about this mentioned Daughters of Darkness, but I don't see any connection, so just ignore me on that
2: front. <laughs> <laughs> you see, could And any other direct. fronts you choose, yeah.
0: I think, I think <laughs> you had your brain scrambled the-
2: by Santa Sankara there, and, um, yeah, which has now just enough. been added to my 2 watch list, I will point out. And Great. also notice on Tubi, there's also Forget Everything You've Ever Seen, Jodorowsky, and the making of Santa Sangre. Oh, is that on Tubi? Okay. It's on Tubi as well. Yeah. Cool. Full documentary. I, I found the Wikipedia um,
0: or of that film, which listed some, in, or maybe it was the Letterboxd reviews of it, um, and it listed some really interesting facts about it, uh, the film. Uh, the film's co produced by claudio argento and i won't spoil it if you're going to watch the uh documentary but um he had some really interesting alternate casting options uh for the film
2: it's it's definitely on um, my watch this now because i have seen uh, the holy mountain about three times and it's a different experience every time and i'm not an art film guy most art films you know within if they're especially if they're creepy crawly you know slow paced ones I'm, I'm done pretty so quickly yeah. but the holy mountain do keeps your attention because it does Keep you Basically, you never know what's going to be on screen one time to another, and you can watch it at 2 o'clock in the morning or 2 o'clock in the afternoon. It will be a different experience any time. I've seen top but I've never seen Santa Sangada, and I've probably had an opportunity three or four times and just never got around to it. So I'll be adding that to the watch list. Although my watch list, i have going to say I want to bring up a couple of things off the watch list because uh, B's just dropped a uh, whole series of Arrow Blu-ray videos uh, have appeared on Tubi in New Zealand in the last um, probably two weeks or so. Oh, so geez. the 1990s Gamma series is there complete. Oh wow! So that to is it in Arrow Blu-ray quality. So I've um we've already watched the first one. Uh, Aiden and I will be getting onto Gamma Two: Attack of Legend shortly. Uh, on the other oh, side awesome. of the spectrum of the movies he won't be watching, Abel Ferreira's The Driller Killer has also appeared there, the notorious video nasty from 1979. Uh, sorry, I'm, could you just
0: expand a little bit? What
2: the the Driller Killer have you never no, I heard
0: mean, of that like, Yeah, but uh, but are you implying you're a bad, a good parent bad for pick. not showing your kid the Driller
2: Killer? No, I'm saying he won't be that. <laughs> That's the other end of the spectrum. He, I, yeah. I'm not even sure I'll be watching it, it's on the watch list, it may stay there for a while because I've I know it is a particularly nasty film, and I've been in a kind of in a lockdown headspace where I've been watching a lot more upbeat things than I have been watching downbeat things. Upbeat, down like The Descent. Go. The Descent. The Descent is an upbeat movie at times. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Woo! <laughs> uh, also on there, Sting of Death has uh, arrived. Ooh. Wow. Uh, a movie called Another Son of Sam, which is not one of the Arrow ones, but it does have a storyline, a synopsis on the IMDb of, a psychotic killer escapes from an insane asylum, goes on a killing spree, and the SWAT team is sent out to track him out. They're sent out to track him down. Kind of. Sort of. So, that's, um, I don't think it's a particularly good movie, and it's got a very, very low rating, but uh, if you want something, apparently it's going to break your brain. That may be one. And then there's The Wind, um, directed by Nico Misterakis. Mister oh, yes. What a cast list. Meg Foster, Wingshauser, David McCallum, Robert, Robert Morley, Morley, and Steve Railsback. So four out of those five people really interest me. So, <laughs> oh, poor Steve Railsback. Oh yeah, Mate, yeah he, he never gets me. any love from you. No, the guy's called Steven Dix, frankly. So, <laughs> oh. but the movies—I'm going to shout out one movie real quick that I have seen quite a while back um, because it was a really fun time. Big Ass Spider! Exclamation mark from 2013. Oh, yeah um should the only review i can say of much better than you would expect a movie called Big Ass Spider Exclamation Mark to be uh it's funny as hell it's got a character who is the the the, the slightly dumb but very lovable comic relief character uh Jose uh, played by Lombardo Boya who is hilarious he he could be the the most cringeworthy thing about it but everything that comes out of his mouth is just hilarious and it's basically just him and Greg Grunberg running around LA trying to defeat a, as it says, a big ass spider. And it never outstays its welcome. It's, I mean, it's, it's rating five points around the internet movie database. It's bollocks. It's a lot more fun than that. So, you know, there's this. I've seen so many of these these terrible CGI bug movies when uh, cinemas are used to play on uh, the Zone uh, TV network, and most of them were dull as hell or stupid as a bag of rocks. But this one is actually a, a lot of fun. So if you and it's on Prime as well, if you get around to you know 80, uh, 80 odd minutes that you've got to waste, pop on Prime and look at a big ass spider. And he does have a big ass as well. Uh, but the one that I finally got around to watching uh, was Romeo Must Die uh, with Jet Oh, Jedi, okay. Alright. Which popped up on Prime all uh, of oh, about two weeks ago. And one of the, the, the late 90s 2000s uh, American ones that he made. And it's a Pretty simple plot. I mean, it is basically Gangland, Romeo and Juliet. There's a uh, African-American gang and there's a Chinese-American gang. And then there's uh, Jet Li's character who is basically stuck in the middle because he's fallen in love with the daughter of uh, the African-American gang, uh, played by Aaliyah in only her first film role, I think it was, before she did Queen of the Damned. Mm-hmm. And she actually quits herself really, really well. She's actually very, very good in it. And it's a real shame she only got to do those two films before she uh, passed away. But it is, I'd have to say, painfully 2000 at times. The soundtrack is every hip-hop artist of 2000. DMX has quite an extended uh, part in it, as a, uh, a uh, owner of a nightclub, and of course DMX has sound, uh, fingerprints all over the soundtrack. The fight scenes, its uh, essentially because Jetly Li is, is known Jetly because of the speed but the director has fallen utterly in love with the slow motion shot. So the movie's an hour and 50. It took the slow motion out, and it'd be about an hour and 30, because every Mm -hmm. fight scene he has to stop and show him in slow motion. And then the the 2000s wire work comes in. And for 90% of the fight scenes, it's just gently kicking people in the face, which is always a fun time. And then every so often they do some wire work, just because that was big at the time. And he utterly breaks physics every time. So at one point he leaps in the air, he kicks four guys in a circle, puts his foot on a pillar, comes back and kicks two other people and physics just goes, I'm not having any part of that. That's that's <laughs> nothing to do with me. You do you, movie. So it's it was a slightly frustrating experience, but actually quite a lot of fun as well because even though gently sometimes feels like he gets a little bit lost in the movie and it is a tiny bit outside his welcome, a tiny bit too much, when he's on form in this one, he is really on form. And when you compare it to the... Edited to, to death Black Mask from money about three years before, where the, the fight scenes were almost incomprehensible. And, uh, of course, The Enforcer, which we watched, which oh. had those fight scenes but were were so 90s edited that it just became a blur of images. Romeo Must Die was actually one, probably one of my favourites I've seen from his sort of 1995 to 2000 run. And I still haven't seen the one, which is apparently just pants-on-head crazy because of its sci-fi trappings. But uh, it was quite an enjoyable experience for me, must I? Okay. And I do want to get your opinion on a couple of other watchless ones, because I've got a couple on there. Uh, McBain uh, has popped back up, prime again. Oh, the um, Christopher Walker. Christopher Walken, yes, Christopher Walken McBain, not not the not the Simpsons McBain. Uh, but um, <laughs> I think I think we we're po-
0: actually going to watch that for something, and then it disappeared
2: right it before disappeared, we were going to yeah, watch it. it Popped up, in fact, it's popped up twice. It's got one copy saying it's from nineteen eighty. I'm sorry, nineteen ninety-one, and one that's four, five minutes longer, saying it's from two thousand and twenty-one. So apparently, they've um, re-edited that. All primes um, algorithm is just being primes algorithm. So we may have a chance to watch that again because I remember you telling me that was quite a a film that we really needed to see. The other one is Teeth. Have either you seen the movie Teeth? Was that the one that played yes. in
0: Incredibly Strange? I have not
2: seen yes. it. No, yeah, that's on for about another three days uh, on Prime by the time this comes out, and it probably will have come off. But I How have. How do you tell that's...
0: when things are going off Prime?
2: It's just popped up a little thing when I hover over saying, leaving Prime September 2nd. So it doesn't oh, really okay. tell you until about a week before, which it's, is quite bizarre. Yeah, it's it's quite bizarre because I've had Stephen Seagal's The Patriot on my um, watch list for about four months without watching it, which is the one where he plays an immunologist who um,
1: apparently oh, is one Of
2: course he does. Guy. It's one of his <laughs> apparently strangest and weirdest performances, and that's been on there for months. But Teeth apparently came popped up for about a month and a half, and is now going again because Prime has been Prime. So, I'm um, to be honest, I the- can't
0: remember why I chose McBain because I can- I don't I'm trying to figure
2: out why it would have been any theme, and it's not obvious to me. To be honest, no, we've got on the spreadsheet somewhere. We were going to watch that, but um, if we do want to watch that, that is back there. So that's just a little uh, heads up. And Darren, you keep mentioning Palm Springs. Why should I watch Palm Springs? It giving- rules. <laughs> yeah. Because you should just fucking listen to what we say and not question <laughs> it. That's why. Oh, I, super- s- I scroll down this massive list of movies and go, they keep talking about that one. Why was I supposed to watch yeah. that? So. It's fun. It's fun. And
0: it's, um, I mean, Groundhog Day is a genre now and it's a film right. in that genre, but it's a really yep. good, film in that genre. And, um, and it's a it's set at a wedding. And that's all I'll say about it. Um, okay, so put that on tonight after I get off funny, from you.
3: Right. So
1: <laughs> it's, real, it's really entertaining. And it's it's very, very witty and clever and funny. It's worth watching.
2: Fantastic. So I will delete uh, the riff tracks of A Talking Cat, which is incredibly impossible to watch even with riff tracks, and watch that tonight instead. Yeah, Excellent. so what
1: we've learned is just don't question us, Skeet. <laughs> <laughs> what
2: <we're> saying. <laughs> you, 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 you we say. Raging <laughs> bull. Raging <laughs> bull. I, I, I'll find that one, but it's not on Prime. I'm looking for it. Is it on Tubi? Uh no. I doubt no, it. I it'll be around somewhere.
0: <laughs> okay. um, speaking of feel-good films in lockdown, shall we get into the reason for the season, which is yeah, these three sure. films of these horror movies that are all, you know, I think, in their own way, quite feel good. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Did we watch the same movie? (laughs) (laughs) Well, you know, I mean, the first film we uh, watched is kind of famous because there's a song that wound up not being used in that movie, but being used in uh, Flashdance, which uh, is uh, Maniac. Um, And boy, there is a lot of backstory to this um, slimy, desperate film. Um, and I say that as a positive, but we'll get into that. Um, so what's you, um, oh, the title before you? Oh, I read the title just a. Yes, yes. Let's review. since you said it exactly. <laughs> yes. it's been a it's been wake at least up. A dozen we're actually doing since. the uh, thing that the episode's about now.
2: <laughs> exactly. So we'll just here we go. Three horror films by first-time feature directors that Doug owns the soundtrack to on vinyl, but has not seen before this episode. <laughs>
0: So, fun fact, this is the very first record that Mondo uh, put out on their soundtrack label. And for a brief period of time, I thought I might collect all their records. And so I have a few of them, but they've done hundreds now. And it's just prohibitively expensive and also silly because, you know, a lot of them aren't really regular listen type things. But um, so that was what spurred me to buy uh, the Maniac soundtrack. Um, But it was a film that I was actually always a little afraid of. Um, It has um famous uh, cover art with you know the head hanging from somebody's hand i think i'm pretty sure it was video nasty if not it probably should have been Almost and certainly. um is and just generally had that vibe of disreputable people doing disreputable things that weren't comfortable it i knew it was about scalping so i was just like eh, and then um and then you know sometimes you confront films and it's like oh you made them to be a big deal in your head, and they're nothing. And then sometimes there's maniac. Um, <laughs> so, uh,
2: let, let me had a film w- to be banned in West Germany.
0: Wow, the the country that brought you Necromantic. Um, yeah. So, I looked up a couple original sort of source material things here, um, and I'll start by letting William Lustig tell the story. Now, lots of people have told these various stories, um, and he met Joe Spinell during the production of a William Friedkin's film, uh, The Seven Ops in New York. Lustig was working as a PA. Spinell was acting in it. Um, Spinell had already been in the Godfather movies as well. And quoth Lustig, I recognized him from the Godfather movies, and he was a very approachable actor. He was very blue collar in the sense that he had none of the airs of some of the other actors who were working in that film. So he was very approachable and loved horror movies. We started talking about our favorite horror films, and from there we started to hang out together, going to see movies at all hours of the day on 42nd Street. You know, Joe was an insomniac. He'd call me up at two in the morning and say, "Let's go catch the 3 a.m. show of the Hollywood Hillside Strangler," and I would jump in a taxi and meet him. It was a lot of fun. We saw tons of movies, and all of a sudden we started to say, hey, we can make our own movie, and we make it designed exactly for what the audience wants over here. And hence, Maniac. That's one way to frame the story. Another way comes from an article by uh, James a filmmaker. Um, in late 1979, Joseph Bennell was a successful character actor who had appeared in major films by Coppola, Friedkin, Scorsese, and Mazursky, but he wanted to go beyond supporting work to make a name for himself as a horror icon. His friend William Lustig was a 24-year-old movie fanatic who had directed a couple of adult films and was hungry to graduate to mainstream features. Joining forces with producer Andrew Garoni, Lustig and Spinell scraped together 48000 and started making Maniac an extremely unpleasant and extremely effective study of a psychotic loner on a killing spree. They never really had a budget just a general policy of making the money for as little as they making the movie for as little as they could. And they kept production going. Thanks to luck favors and a shockingly generous bank. that gave Lustig an unsecured $10,000 loan at a moment when he was down to his last 20 bucks. One other great Lustig quote, bear in mind, I had one advantage over other filmmakers at the time, and that was an insatiable appetite to watch every film that was ever made. It was a great period in New York in the late 60s, the 70s, and starting to dwindle in the early 80s, where there are repertory theaters that played double features of classic movies. So I really got to see a lot of movies. I would go seven days a week. I would skip school and see movies during the day. My influences at the time were Rosemary's Baby, the Dario Argento movies, Lucio Fulci, all these directors I was aware of before they became popular. The Bird with the crystal plumage was a big influence deep red a big influence i thought of hitchcock quite a bit if i were to dissect maniac with you i could tell you what was going through my mind in various scenes and certain shots um so yeah he basically directed some porno under the euphemism billy bag used the profits from his film hot money hot honey to make maniac along with favors and unsecured bank loans they shot from october 21 1979 to january 18 1980 uh they had to film many scenes guerrilla style because they couldn't afford permits um the shotgun scene was filmed in just an hour um and it was loosely inspired by the Son of Sam murders. Uh, but Savini, who served as the film's makeup artist, received the role for the male victim from him having already made a cast of his own head, which was filled inside with leftover food and fake blood. Since Savini used live ammunition for the scene, he immediately threw the shotgun into the trunk of a waiting car driven by an assistant who was a friend of Spinell to avoid being caught by the police. And I think I read elsewhere that they then threw that shotgun in the um, the Hudson River.
2: I heard they threw uh, the, the whole car in them. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> and said maybe that may be uh, the story getting blown out. But yeah, definitely, they uh, yes. you know firing a shotgun in New York City for a film was probably, probably not something the NYPD would have been big on.
0: No. Uh, and speaking of not being big on it, we could talk about the critics' reaction. Um, <laughs> Gene, Gene Siskel said to have stormed out after watching only 30 minutes of the film, claiming that the film would not... Re- redeem it could not redeem itself vincent canby apparently sat through the whole thing uh, for the new york times and said good sense if not heaven should protect anyone who thinks he likes horror films from wasting a price of admission on maniac a movie that shows how an aging pot-bellied maniac slices up young women of no great intelligence um oh. regardless maniac is through sort of a freak of circumstance, because after a career in directing, uh, Lustig went on to Vigilante, Maniac Cop, Maniac Cop 2, Maniac Cop 3, Uncle Sam. Uh, and then he went on to found the um, one of the key uh, cult Blu-ray labels, Blue Underground, originally a DVD mm-hmm. label. And so, uh, and Maniac, um, thanks in part to the... Um, Insatiable desire of the home video audience for horror uh has become one of their keystone titles, and there's even now a 4K maniac restoration, which Jeez. is just boggles
2: the mind. It's not a movie. Slime on that can film. Even impossible imagine to imagine say, in 4K. Yeah, yeah. It's it should be yeah, shown it's, at it's, three it's, o'clock it's not, in the morning on yeah. flickery flickery 16 mil at based yeah
1: i don't um, want to see 4k
0: sweat on joe Spinell. <laughs> <laughs> yeah very sadly um uh spinel's not around to see um this sort of latter day reclamation from it he had a very tragic death in um january 1989 at the age of 52 um he was a hemophiliac and uh one morning he cut himself on the uh he slipped in the bathtub and he cut himself on the shower stall door And then instead of calling for help, he went to sleep and bled to death. And uh, one of his neighbors who – sorry, one of his friends had stopped by um, and had talked to him just 20 minutes on the phone earlier. And Spinell had asked him to bring some ice cream and groceries, but um, Spinell Spinell didn't answer the phone. So um, he had a difficult life. He was married to – an adult film star from 1977 to 1979. They had one daughter before divorce. Uh, He was a close friend of Sylvester Stallone and the godfather of Sage Stallone, but they had a falling out during the filming of Nighthawks, which they were both in. Um, But, um, you know, he also left an indelible, I mean, he was in Godfather 1 and 2, Taxi Driver, Rocky 1 and 2, Sorcerer, Star Crash, um, you know, just a, a wide variety <laughs> of films. But, but you know, there aren't many where he got to take center stage, and this is one. Um, I'm sick of the sound of my own voice, so I'll tell you about <laughs> the very interesting Jay Chataway maybe at the end of this. But um, what did you guys think of me, Maniac?
2: Well, uh, how <laughs> do we put this? Uh, it's, um, it's almost... For the first third, almost unremittingly grim. It, it was, uh, yeah, like I said, I've been trying to watch upbeat movies in the last uh, week or so. And watching this one, this is actually a movie which I've you know been a, a horror movie fan I've known about for a long time. But just like you, I was reluctant to watch it. Because just the trailer alone, which shows the, the, head, the shotgun to the head scene in slow motion, kind of put me off it. I knew it was going to be that gritty, that downbeat of film. And then it does kind of, it almost in the middle third, suddenly picks up as, as he comes out of his his homicidal rage and just gets a few moments of happiness mm-hmm. with, of all people, Caroline Munro, who I was yeah absolutely flummoxed to see in the movie. And apparently it's because her producer husband, uh, Judd Hamilton, came up with the two hundred thousand dollars to finish the movie because, as you say, they were scraping for cash. Um, Joseph Nell do- donated sixty percent of his salary from cruising six grand to get into the to start the film so Wow um, yeah so when when he gets that that middle third it was like wow okay here we go and then suddenly it it descends again so it is it's not a pleasant watch i would have to say it's not one that i would willingly sit through multiple times because i'm glad i've seen it uh, i enjoyed it for the the grindhouse ethic of it and the just that guerrilla filmmaking but would I sit there and watch it on a regular basis? Fuck no.
1: <laughs> <laughs> well, Skeets, you say you were reluctant to see it. Can you imagine how reluctant? <laughs> <I was? laughs>
2: Mr. Squeamish over there. Yes,
1: absolutely. But I um I saw it with uh, with Doug, in actual fact, for the um, for the viewing and uh to uh, coin a uh, uh, a possible phrase from Tom Savini I was blown away
2: oh well theres there's our dad pun for today so that's thats sort of take that one off card. So
0: <laughs> it's not like we can stop him if he does more no <laughs> <laughs>
2: I we can find a way to remotely mute him shortly. <laughs>
0: <laughs> That's the power of the editor. Yeah, <laughs> that was ludicrously specific. Good listening. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> but it's um, yeah, it's
1: it was um, we were just shaken by it. Would that yeah. be a fair assessment,
0: Doug? Yeah, I agree with everybody. Um, it's there's it's a film of a few stunning, gory moments. But the the miasma of unpleasantness just lingers th- through every frame. And part of it is, you know, Joe Spinell's committed performance of desperation. um, there's it's a it's a film that's not in a hurry. Uh, it's a film that is just so, you know, there, yeah, I mean, it just I'll probably just say, synonyms of desperate and sad over and over and i remember like after we watched it just like you know let's go for a walk it was just <laughs> i needed to get out of the house and we watched it during the day and I, I was just, like i needed sunlight and i didn't even want to go into watching anything else after that and i think we watched a couple movies that day and that might have been first and it was still kind of and lingering Lagos. at the and end of Lagos. it it just yeah. yeah and 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 it's it's, it's one of those like it's yeah it's an incredibly well-made film and and maybe i would revisit it again under right the right circumstances because i think yes, it's I but but you know it's certainly not a go-to film it's certainly not a film i feel compelled to have on my shelf um and yeah. let's talk uh,
1: about the um how well crafted that uh, subway oh,
2: sequence
0: oh man now yeah we've watched
2: this amazing, thing, amazing. By the film, yeah, by a long way
0: Yeah, yeah. I mean that um, when he talks about Hitchcock or Argento, like I feel like that scene um, holds up to any of them. Uh, Indeed, you know, Um, and there's almost a kind of uh, bit that's a riff on either a riff on Tenebrae or vice versa. I can't remember the exact timing, but involving um, her looking in the mirror, but um, just the yeah, and it's it is that it's that patient it's. You know the film's called Maniac. You know it's not happy. You know, any character you meet is not going to be especially long for this world. And so spending nine minutes or ten minutes or however that long is with that character is pretty sadistic in a way. And, and, And also just, I think, just the level of performance, you know, I mean, apart from a sort of weird turn in midway through the second act where um spinel's character who seems to have some kind of screenwriter half-assed version of multiple personality disorder suddenly becomes very gregarious and in that but um i feel the the performances are often very grounded and very real and and it does feel like often people on screen are if they're not actually being traumatized then they're fucking
2: brilliant uh actors Which is interesting because he actually used quite a few porn actresses to just to save money from right, you know, his okay. previous movies. And uh, but the, you, I mean, obviously, when you're making something like, you know, there's two movies for The Violation of Claudia and Hot Honey. You're not really thinking about, you know, Argento like shots for for making porn because you're making porn to make get it out there as quickly as possible. Even in the quote golden age of porn, there was still a lot of, of ones just being fired out there just to to fill the, the theatres. But the skill and that middle and that sequence there, as I say, you you definitely you feel for that victim. It's not she's not disposed. She's treated like a, a human being, and you're, you know, you are on the edge of your seat on that section. And he's it's a very it's such a dark movie. I can't even imagine watching it in say in Times Square and then walking out in 1980 oh. out into Times Square into literally what you've just watched there. I would have run for the nearest taxi and got the hell out of there and wouldn't have looked back until we were in you know you know reno possibly so (laughs) (laughs) it's impossible to overstate oh sorry
0: oh no no up to you i was just gonna say it's impossible to overstate how much that film is a product of its setting and how much i mean i've seen quite a few films and i'm always enjoy that era of um new york grime it's like you could never production design something is compelling i think when we oh, talked about uh, report to the commissioner um which is a you know a very different film but also takes okay. advantage of new york as you know this real place um in this in similar ways to this but um and uh, and, and it reminded me of um basket case as well which we watched recently but yeah
2: uh, well i mean the the i think it was the producer of- which is kind of fun yeah, the producer of, I think, 1990, The Bronx Warriors, which was one of the post-apocalyptic one said in, in post, you know, far future New York, said that he came up with the idea after he got off the train at the wrong stop and ended up in the Bronx in late 70s uh, New York and just walked out and went, my God. And he said he was just walking around past, you know, drug dealers and gang members and was surprised afterwards he didn't actually get killed as he walked around this urban blight and partially demolished city blocks going, I can make a film here. So, as you say, there was no production design needed in those ones because it really was that grimy. And I've got a real affection for New York. I've never been there. I've never been to America. But out of anywhere I would go, I feel like calling that I would like to go to New York one day because I really feel at home with that place after watching all these movies.
1: Yeah, that seems fair. Uh, one thing I'd like to say is the. Um, it, I think we should point out how good the um, the scripting of this movie is. and. And uh, I mean, that Tom Savini scene is almost like a um a five minute romantic comedy that ends tragically, <laughs> of course, but they it's it's re- they're really likable. Uh, it's Tom Savini and uh, and his romantic partner are, are really kind of likable and they've got really nice dialogue or, or sort of New York style dialogue, but it's uh, it's they're interesting characters to follow for five minutes before they um, meet a very grisly demise but i think that's part of what pulls you through is that everyone you meet has a has a sadness or a desperation or a or a horrible death
0: (laughs) they have a life outside the screen even if you know next to nothing about even if you've just seen them as a nurse walking out of work and walking there you don't feel that's like it. they're an actor that's just put up on costume you feel like they're a life that's about to be cut short
1: that's it that's it that's that's a very good way to put it mm-hmm. yeah um, it- i i don't know if i yeah i think i would revisit it it's it's not something i feel i need to own but i'm so glad that we did this so uh, because i've been it's been something that i've been aware that was uh, in my uh, in my destiny to see this film at some point, no matter how hard I I recoiled against it. But I'm very, very glad I saw it.
0: Yes. You've lived your destiny. Um let me speak. So what did you guys think of the soundtrack, by the way?
2: It's interesting because I it's one of the out of the three movies we watched, it's possibly one of the ones with the soundtrack. Kind of at the time I was I was trying to listen to it, but at the end of it, the just the relentless growiness of it had kind of washed away what I was listening to because it was you know, for me it was much more of a visual movie. I can't recall the
1: soundtrack hardly at all for this one. I'm I'm sorry to say. <laughs> I
0: don't, well, I I think that's actually like I think that that's one of the strengths of the soundtrack in a way is that it's not a conventional. Um, horror movie like hummy theme kind of thing but it's using these electronic uh instruments to create something really uh textural and um uh it's kind of it's it's using some of the same tools that john carpenter did but in a very different kind of way um just to tell a little bit about the um story of uh Uh, The composer is a guy named Jay Chataway, who's an Emmy award winner who won his Emmy in 2001 for the final episode of Star Trek Voyager. Um, which is not only a crazy journey from uh, <laughs> there, but but also like Maniac is not as most likely place. He was born in 1946 and he was writing jazz arrangements as early as eighth grade, uh, drafted into the military during Vietnam while he was working his graduate degree in music at West Virginia University. And then he joined the Navy Band where he became the unit's chief arranger and composer. Um, he, after he got discharged, he moved to New York City, uh, and he was a producer at CBS records and, uh, I'd, actually I'll send you a link because there's a really interesting interview with him and he had, in that role, he just got involved with the soundtrack for Michael Winner's firepower with Sophia Loren and OJ Simpson. And, um, the producer mania contacted CBS and, um, I think just semi randomly, um, um, away who incidentally was also an arranger of big band charts for the Maynard Ferguson orchestra during the seventies and composed uh, some of Ferguson's hits including conquistador super meets the bad man and primal screen. Um, and so it wasn't a logical thing to say, Hey, do you want to do the score? And Gironi said, do you have any young artists who might be interested in writing music? But Chataway put his hand up and he's like, you know, I'm not really into horror movies, but you know, he was excited about the enthusiasm, you know, he, it'd been really struck with working on firepower at how everybody was just kind of treating it like a job. And then you suddenly had these people, you are putting every spare penny in it, working all hours, you know, really passionate about it. And, um, so they gave him the chance to, um, give it a go. And, uh, you know, the, and with this lead, um, electronics, I mean, we've got everything from mini Moog, Oberheim, polyphonic synth, profit five, Mellotron, and, a electric piano, acoustic piano played by Peter Levin, as well as a couple other uh, instrumentalists on bass, woodwinds and drums. Um, but it is it is really about creating the texture and it just becomes, I think, in the soundtrack, it becomes another level of grime that really sits in there, which, you know, it's not a record I put on very often because it's <laughs> <laughs> for, for many obvious reasons, but um, and it's it's also a, a, it's I sometimes I feel like the best soundtracks in a way are the ones that in a film sense, you know, that, you know, don't necessarily hang, hold up on their own, but are working with the image to create something that's really um coherent and together. And when you have sometimes you may have re- I mean, I think it's a film like the visitor which has an amazing soundtrack which they use to cover the fact that it's just a long shot of um walking across the street and it's boring as shit so but if you have an amazing (laughs) funk track playing you forget that for a minute um and this is this is kind of the opposite you you won't walk out humming anything but it's just another little wedge that gets under the skin
1: to save um, those who might write in, when you say Cassavetes, you mean Lance Henriksen, or
0: in uh... the visitor? No, I'm pretty sure. Isn't it Cassavetes that's in the visitor? Am I? There's a lot of people in the visitor, so I'm maybe I'm mixing up. Yeah, John up Cassavetes
1: my... is, isn't in there, but uh, it he wasn't not? to okay, correct I... you. It was just to save. Oh, John Houston. From that, John
0: Houston. Yeah, that's why. There we go. <laughs> yeah, some old ass uh, actor who was. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> in there okay yes corrected um as and it, uh, just to go back to the song from Flashdance. um so originally actually michael sambella the composer of that was inspired by a news report and um he composed uh, a soundtrack with lines or a song with that like he'll steal your cat and nail it to the floor and things like oh. that and then then rented the movie maniac and fleshed it out and then um people like i don't know about this and then um suddenly uh phil ramone heard the demo when he was looking for songs to use in Flashdance, and he loved the sound of it um sent it to adrian line who uh, was directing it and they started using that as background music and then um and then wanted it and because the, also they had to have music to do the choreography too. And then um, uh, Ramon asked for lyrics that actually fit the movie. And so then they re-recorded the song and it became the song
2: about a, um, you know, a dancer that it is today. <laughs> wow. <laughs> no, quite the journey on that one. I, I did hear, uh, read that um, in the early uh, production of, uh, of Maniac when um, uh, Dario Argento was on board, that Goblin was going to be doing the soundtrack, but that fell through, of course, when, uh, when Argento left the project. So, uh, right. I didn't did research
0: as much Argento's involvement in it.
2: Yeah. Well, I here's just an enduring... A... Oh. oh, sorry. No, 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 you go. You go.
1: I was just saying, here's an enduring image. Um, imagine Joe Spinell oh. in the lead role in Flashdance. <laughs>
2: <laughs> and that stuck in my head for a while.
1: All right.
2: <laughs> <laughs> well on that note should we should we move on to movie number two and, uh, oh, and bring yeah it up just, up
0: and bring it up a little. <laughs> i was just going to say that chad continued to work with um uh the director uh lustig in vigilante and um maniac cop and some of his other films as well as moving on to doing like invasion usa and missing in action three and then went on to do star trek so uh, maniac was the start of Great things for him.
2: Uh, and yes. Vigilante is a movie I would recommend, even though it is still Visual quite Antis- a dark movie. It's it's still pretty as hell, but yeah, it's, it's yeah, well it's, worth watching that one.
0: It's not pleasant, but it is much uh, more palatable.
2: Yeah.
0: yeah. And my favourite thing about
1: it. In, uh, in, in Vigilante is uh, as a sleazy lawyer type, which is, is actually just a nice little cool
2: cameo. My favorite thing about Lustig, though, was uh, his uh, Maniac 3 directing, where after a while he walked into the uh, producer's office, put down the film, which was 45 minutes long, and said, I'm finished, and walked out, I'm walked off the set, and they had to pull in, I think, an editor to finish directing the rest of the film, an editor who had no experience, which is why Maniac Cop 3 is… Slightly odd experience to watch because there's even different, I think, different film grades that they use when they make it. So you can (laughs) literally tell which half was Lustig's, which half was Editor dragged in to finish this production. So I don't think he had a good time on that one, unfortunately.
1: I believe Robert Forster's character, uh, the Doctor, comes in from the other director and not William Lustig, too, which is quite a surprise.
2: Yeah. Right. right, So so let's let's move on. on. Let's move on to Arachnophobia from 1990. So, uh, yes, music by Trevor by, Jones. Yeah, music by Trevor Jones and directed by Frank Marshall, starring Jeff Daniels, Julian Sands, John Goodman and a shit ton of spiders. And the very first film uh, for the Hollywood Pictures Company, which was um, a Walt Disney label, basically, that they – spun off to run alongside Touchstone Pictures because Touchstone Pictures was kind of the more, the more grown up uh, version of of Walt Disney's uh, films. Mm. And then, uh, after, uh, they'd started to scale that back a little bit, they bought in, uh, Hollywood Pictures, which was going to be their, um, their next big thing. And they started off with arachnophobia. And after that, I've got to say, looking down the list of Hollywood productions for a Hollywood films, um, not all, not all hits. Uh, V.I. Uh There was um, <laughs> Super Mario Brothers is in there. Uh, there is quite a lot of movies that didn't really hit the, what they were aiming for, such as 1995's Judge Dredd, which I will punch if I ever see that movie again. Uh, they, they, had, they only really had about half a dozen movies that actually made that went huge. The Sixth Sense was one of theirs, The Rock. Uh, Spy Hard's in there, which I quite like for the uh, opening theme song, but the movie, I've got to admit, is pretty shit. And apparently the best reviewed movie was The Joy Luck Club. But when they started off with arachnophobia, they started pretty strong because they went into co-production with Amblin Entertainment. So we had Steven Spielberg's name on this one. And it could have been amazing things, but apparently they just did um, did not gel altogether. So Frank Marshall got his first directing job, and then... Pretty much uh, the moment that uh, Steven Spielberg discovered that they were taking his second Roger Rabbit short he was going to have before Arachnophobia and putting it on Dick Tracy instead uh, was pretty much all she wrote uh, for that partnership. Frank Marshall, of course, producer more than a director. So he's produced well over 100 and you know, probably coming close to 150 different things. Uh, pretty much every one of your favorite movies, if you're our age, was mm-hmm. produced by him. So,
0: And not an asshole it, like me.
2: No. <laughs> yep. Yeah, Poltergeist, uh, Indiana Jones, all the Indiana Jones movies, Gremlins, Goonies, uh, Who Framed Roger Rabbit? Just a ton. All the Back to the Futures was his producing, but he's uh, directed only uh, just a handful of movies. Started off with this one in 1990. Did Alive in 1993. Congo in 1995. Uh, Eight Below in 2006, and then a documentary on the Bee Gees in 2020, which was a bit of a bit of a departure there.
1: I still do – I, I uh, have quite a love for Congo. It's not a great movie, but there's something about it that I really enjoy.
2: I've never seen it. I've never it. it and never had any interest in seeing it, but it's just kind of one of those ones that's been there. I know of it, but not enough to interest me in going and actually watching it. Well, it
0: Bruce just felt Campbell like it was part had,
2: of the cash run after uh, Jurassic Bruce
1: Campbell's home. in the first five, ten minutes – and um, Tim Curry gets to play a scenery chewing character uh, throughout the movie, so I think that could sh- should be enough. You've also got Joe Dom Baker in there, Laura Linney. It's um, it's a fun film.
2: Nice. So there we go. A little extra recommendation for you there. Uh, now this movie, Arachnophobia, was built um, quite cringingly as a thrillomedy. <laughs> and apparently they use that in the uh, in the first trailer. They called it a thrillomedy, and that will be the last time I say that word because it's terrible. But it's I mean we are looking at pretty much Disney's first attempt at kind of a light horror film, so a PG thirteen horror film if you like, but also one with a very very light touch and quite a lot of humour. If you if you've never seen Arachnophobia, um, congratulations on being young, because uh, most of us I think will have or seen being it, Doug. Too, intercepted dog i don't know what happened with though that you missed this one uh the plot is is nice and easy to describe a an scientific expedition in venezuela accidentally transports a large and incredibly deadly spider uh back to america and a and a crate with a dead body whereupon it mates with a, a local spider and pretty soon the small california town runners start to um, mysteriously drop dead of spider bites and it's up to some of a really nice ensemble cast. Jeff Daniels as Dr. Ross Jennings, who's mm-hmm. moved from San Francisco to become the small-town doctor. Uh, unfortunately, Henry Jones, the small-town doctor who is taking over, refuses to retire, leading to some really nice interplay as he has to try and you know get himself into the small town, whereas it's, he's getting undercut by Dr. Sam Ecco the whole time. So you get a nice little bit of, little bit of drama when there's not spiders on the screen. Uh, you've got Julian Sands in there who, I, every time I watch this movie, I get torn. Because I've seen this movie many times. Sometimes I find them the least interesting thing about it, but today watching it again for about the sixth or seventh time, I quite liked his performance. He's, he underplays it quite a lot and he's very much, it's all about the spiders, but he actually does a really nice job. It is really a nice surprising
0: drive. Julian Sands performance.
2: Yeah, it's 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 such a, a laid-back one that sometimes you, you kind of go, okay, he's, he's very focused as, I guess, what he was going for, but Sometimes when I watch it, if I'm not in the right mood, it's just like get on with the doctor. Let's it's, you know stop talking about the spiders and let's get on to the action. Uh, but then again, yep. he is overshadowed by John Goodman, who's uh, who is oh, well. God. Everyone uh, in this film is overshadowed by him. <laughs> as Delbert McClintock, uh, who's not an exterminator. He's an an insect management professional, I believe, is the term. <laughs> and he's and in fairness, there's people. there's also Stuart Pankin
1: and Peter Jason. Give lovely little performances as well. Everyone is is really up to the task in this film.
2: Yeah, um, I mean, Harley Jane Kozak, who plays uh, Def Janel's wife, is is a nice support character, and there is just a wonderful performance by Mary Carver as, as Margaret Hollands, who's the, the first person to befriend uh, the the Jennings when she gets there. Just a, and not a not a, a lengthy performance because of the nature of the film, the nature of the past part, but just gives that, that really nice homey. Character yeah. that you really wouldn't probably need in a small town and anywhere in America, if you would hope. And the real stars, of course, of this one is the Avondale spider, because these thousands of spiders that you see on screen were imported from New Zealand, of course. So they were our very, very non-venomous Avondale spiders, picked because, one, they were non-venomous, and two, they're quite large. And flown to America, uh, uh, but uh, never allowed to come back, unfortunately, because of quarantine rules. So I don't know what happened to them afterwards. They did claim a zero fatality rate on the spiders on the set because of many, many tricks. If someone stepped on a spider, they had little uh, compartments built in their boots so that they would just step over the spider. So there was a lot of tricks to avoid killing them. That is I a, believe the,
1: one of them mutated into the big ass spider. Actually. Oh, very uh, possibly
2: it could be. <laughs> Not the big ass spider. That's the Irish version of that one. So it's um, <laughs> the big ars. The big ass spider. spider. <laughs> but uh, the, uh, the the so ninety percent of the no ninety nine percent of the spiders on re, on screen are real. There is one animatronic that they called Big Bob. Uh, apparently named after Robert Zemeckis. Uh and it was. Created and it is one of his very first Hollywood jobs by Mythbusters that have become uh, Jamie Heineman, actually created Big Bob. Uh-huh. And yeah, so it's it's still holds up pretty well. When we watched that today, there's a few special effects that, you know, 30 years down the track, you know, you can kind of see through, but Big Bob still looks like just a, a big spider that actually moves in a really realistic way. So um, yeah, it was a, a very nice start from Jamie Heineman and Co. I've run out of words to say there about this because it's simply <laughs> much because I've I've watched this movie so many times that I didn't even think I was going to watch it because I know the beat so much. The reason I did watch it this morning is I showed Aiden, Of course, he'd never seen it. And All right. I, How did he take it? I think he enjoyed it. We watched it during daytime, and it, you know he's he's seen enough horror movies that it was not a scary movie. But he was n- at no point did he seem bored, and he I think he definitely enjoyed. Uh, watching spiders run around. He was, he was talking about whether the spider would get, quote, a 15-kill streak, which I think is some gaming term that I don't quite understand. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, it's... it's it's. I think for kids that haven't gone into horror, I think it's a really nice introduction to something that's yeah. a little bit scary. If you've got a kid that is, unlike my one, that doesn't want to, you know, go and watch a Neil a Marshall movie or, you know, Sean the Dead on, a, on the drop of a hat. Because I do remember watching this in the cinemas, and I remember it very clearly, because this, I would have been 17, I think. And across from me, there was three 13-year-old girls. They had to be 13, because they had never seen a horror movie before, and all three of them had their knees pressed up against the seat in front of them. They were in complete defensive mode the whole time. And during the one jump scare with a pipe, which I'm sure you'll know, their shriek from those three echoed across the theater, and I went, well, there we go. That's That's someone's introduction to horror right there. Yeah, Because you know, I've seen a few horror movies before then, but um, I think I saw The Exorcist at the age of 13, which was a mistake. But um,
0: it, it took me, you, you mentioning the year again, for me to clock why I didn't watch this at the time, was simply because I thought it was a kiddie movie. I thought right. they were going going for something for people a bit younger than me. And I was trying to pretend that I was a grown up, which, you know, long since given up on, but at the, at, when I was 17, that was especially important to me, especially cause I looked like I was 11. Uh, so, um, and, and also though, it was a very big, I mean, I've got the album cover right here, you know, and it's just got a picture of the spider hanging down and it's, it's not really clear. Like, you know, I mean, obviously it's a movie with, a spider and it's a horror film great but like you know there's a lot of space in that um and i was actually really surprised when i watched this because i just assumed that the younger characters would have literally almost any involvement with the plot and Mm -hmm. um that it wouldn't be about a failure to uh come to terms with a retiring um physician in a small town before moving there and that there would be so much shoe leather in that first half about, you know, business, the business of moving to the country and all of this. And, um, yeah, so I don't know how much of my reaction on watching it a first time was about expectations and how much of it was coming to it at 47 instead of 17. Um, yeah, I, th- I thought it was – I certainly didn't fall in love with it. I think there's – it's a horror movie to hate. There's lots of likable things about it. Um, Some of the interplay that Jeff Daniels has and, and some of his line delivery is lovely. Um, the special effects are generally quite good. Um, the um John Goodman, I loved pretty much every scene. With, <laughs> you got not um, John Goodman character. <laughs> there is that – There's that kind of um, philosophy, I think we might have discussed it on a previous app, that in the way to make a humorous movie is that you only have one person being funny on screen. And um, it's kind of like, they're like, okay, we're only going to have one person really being funny in the film, and that's Goodman. And, um, And so it just takes everything he's in to another level. But, I mean, ultimately I'm not a big, I don't have a big fear of spiders, and the weird specificity of how this spider came to be in this town kind of, undercuts any sort of this could happen to you thing like it which doesn't you know there's a couple scenes like with the slipper that, that there's still like kind of a you can project yourself into a bit but it didn't have that um yeah i don't know what what did you think darren you'd seen it before
1: oh countless times right it's, yeah. um it was one of my gateway movies because uh, right um in terms of horror i've I've always been a um, I've always been someone who's interested in story, yeah. um, and I and but been generally generally very nervous and scared about uh, horror movies, but my interest in story usually drew me towards these things. Uh, when it came to arachnophobia, it was a sold as a comedy horror, and that. Allowed me to entertain the idea of seeing it, and then I went and saw it with a bunch of mates, um, uh, schoolmates at, um, in uh, mid city, I think it was in town, um, in Auckland, and um, I loved it, and I've seen it many, many, many times since, and I still love it.
2: Yeah, it's one of those films that I think is rewatchable. It's, I, the reason I've probably seen it so very often, I, I probably owned it at some stage because I used to buy movies just kind of randomly on VHS. But I, I any time I saw it popping up on Sky Movies, which I've had you know, for 30-odd years, I would always just stop and watch it, even if I was halfway mm-hmm. through, because I knew the movie so well. I just knew those beats. But I, I really enjoyed the the characters in there. It's like coming back into that small town and just meeting those, those yes. characters again is is always a, a real joy for me and it does feel I like a
0: film it, that you could comfortably have on in the background it's like yeah one yeah of those films that if it was back in the era where it was broadcast tv or cable tv and it just happened to come on i probably wouldn't turn it off and even if i was doing other things i might you know stop and watch a bit and laugh and then go you know put the dishes away or whatever and um, you know, it certainly has a watchability that Maniac does not in
2: that <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, you have to plan for Maniac a little bit. You know, you have to plan to, you know, go and scrub yourself off afterwards and take a walk and and call your mother and, you know, and, and do all the stuff that, that gets you know, get your mind off. Get sh- a style shower going. <laughs> <laughs> in terms of it, I, I think there are actually um, a lot of
1: fun characters, comedic. Uh, I think Jeff Daniels has some great... um. Comedic delivery in there. I th- uh, definitely John Goodman is the the main comedy source. Or, d- but I think Stuart Pankin brings a lot as the um, as the cowardly sheriff and or, well the the belligerent cowardly sheriff. Uh, I think I think there's a um, yeah, uh, but it's it's a film I've seen a lot and I've I have I, I enjoy very very much.
2: Apparently they even filmed a death scene for his character, and but it was cut out of the movie for length. And I'm quite glad of that because it doesn't. He didn't feel like a character who ever deserved to be killed oh. off. I mean, he was a small town, bully-made sheriff, and you know he was a he was a dick. But you know you get that. But he still was. He was still helping out. And at the end of the day, I, I wouldn't have wanted to see him. Because apparently the plot would, plan was that after he left Julian Sands, he was to drive off a spider lance on him, and he goes off the side of the road, which is. A, Pretty much ripped directly from William Shatner's um, uh, Kingdom of the Spiders, uh, which yeah. which which is actually quite another fun but super seventies at times one. It's a lot more downbeat than uh, than Arachnophobia. Oh yeah, and, yeah. To be serious, the more it goes, the, the more downbeat it goes. But it's it's got some it's got some fun moments in the first half, and then it just oh, starts the getting. To is,
1: oh no! But oh, the ending bleak is bleak as shit. Wonderful. Yeah, bleak
2: as shit. Yeah. <laughs> It's a wonderful bleakish shit ending though. It's it is, um, Spiders win. Spiders win. <laughs> that is a
1: spoiler, actually. Um that but... is
0: a spoiler. <laughs> Hey, can I just be a um pedantic guy in also in commenting on this movie? Of no, course. Go you go can. On. That's your job description. Do um, it. one thing about watching Frank Marshall as a first-time director, I feel like I noticed a lot of scenes that would be like four or five people sitting around talking there's one in a lab and one of the things that your is your job as a director is to try to find ways to make those scenes dynamic through blocking and moving actors around and it's it's not an easy it's not an easy or obvious skill um and it's something that i didn't really fully click on the importance of till i had already shot my movie which is a really bad time to learn it uh and, and 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 It's what makes, um, you know, being, I mean, there's a scene in The Post, of all things, where there's a bunch of uh, people sitting in um, the house where they're putting together the investigatory article. and, And just the choreography of the actors moving through frame and the layout of what they're doing blinds you to the fact that it's a really unnecessary, somewhat dull scene, but it's just the artistry of all that movement, because this is about moving image and, um, and it is. And so I feel like there's moments like that where it's sort of the first time directorness of it really lets down what a Spielberg might've gotten out of the same material.
3: Yeah. But
1: there's, uh, there are some moments in there that, and maybe, you, you, um, I, I really liked the spider point of view near the end of the movie.
2: Where you oh, see those, the spiders. Those, yeah. Reflection on yes. the spider's eyes, yeah. Yeah.
1: And also, um, I'm very fond of the bit where the you've got the two young girls and the sleepover and this, Ah oh, okay. yeah, yeah. And the fact that a, a a lifeless doll reacts to the fact that there is a spider coming down. The eyes are closed and then the doll's eyes open. Which is um, yeah. but they never yeah, they, got and a it's laugh. just
2: you, purely really played as a gag yeah i thought and did do one like that shot when when that happened so it's 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 a nice little cute moment i mean it doesn't it doesn't quite make a lot of sense but you sometimes you just okay. gotta go it's a movie
0: <laughs> yeah yeah and look i mean there's a lot of things that are way more professional about it than maniac a friend of mine used to talk about um the circle of quality and like, like it's sort of a low end of things you can be quite and he was talking about in music and, you know, you can have bands like, you know, the Ramones are really gutter punk bands or whatever that can be quite sloppy and messy, but the sheer force of the energy and the willpower, um, makes it compelling. And then you can get a point where everybody gets technically better, but it also gets a bit worse because it loses that kind of spirit and it becomes a bit safe. And eventually if you're thinking about a circle and like, you know, the you draw, uh, you stick a point at the top and you draw a circle and then you end at the bottom. You could call the bottom the Nickelback Nadir, where you have a band that's completely <laughs> technically competent, but nobody wants to listen to. Um, <laughs>
2: <laughs> have you heard the <laughs> Cameron Devil Goes, Goes down to Georgia? It fucking slaps.
0: I'm sure. Oh, God. Um, it's amazing. I've I, I've seen it has three Nickelback songs in it. Uh, and then <laughs> it gradually, um, you know, gradually as the band's get more and more experimental and move on beyond that, then it kind of, and increase in both virtuosity and creativity and what have you, you get stuff that's just as compelling often as the stuff that's completely, you know, un, you know, (laughs) unskilled, but you know uh, that that's the circle of quality is a theory of mine. And I kind of get, I kind of feel like, you know, arachnophobia is inarguably a more accomplished movie in so many more ways than Maniac but there's just something so much more compelling about Maniac to me even though you would never compare these two movies except that no, I own the records except that we do it.
2: Yes. and speaking of music we had to talk Trevor Jones um Trevor Jones yes. uh born in Cape Town and uh, according to his bio he lived across from the gym Cinema which is so old and worn out that there was often a loss of the soundtrack and which caused him to realize its power And everyone in his family was in theatre, film and theatre. So he, when they moved to England, he went to the Royal Academy of Music. uh, And then he worked for the BBC for four years as a classical music reviewer and became a uh, naturalised British uh, citizen. Went on to the British uh, National Film School for an MA in film music. And then was discovered by John Borman uh, after he did music for an Irish TV show. He wrote 55 minutes of music for the movie Excalibur.
1: Mm -hmm. Yes, he did.
2: At that point in time, I guess it's off to the races because there's over 100 films on his, uh, on his CV and there is many, many amazing movies in there. And even in the early days, I mean, The Excalibur was the first one. Dark Crystal, only mm-hmm. uh, a year later. Savage Islands, one of my favorite movies that we, we'd probably, I would love to find yes. Savage Islands and and slot that into some sort of ludicrously specific South Pacific movie. Uh, American thing with Tommy Lee Jones. I don't know what. but a ludicrously
1: South Pacific. That sounds, ludicrously like, South Pacific. Yeah.
2: <laughs> <laughs> sounds like a nightclub.
0: <laughs> well, I, I know someone who worked on Savage Island, so maybe we can come up with people that Doug's worked with or oh, studied under in films that. they made. Nice. Because David would be another one of those. So. Oh,
2: yeah. There we go. So we got tickled and we've got, we'll, we'll, we'll workshop this after we get off the year. Also, did. Um, Soundtracks for Runaway Train, for uh, oh yeah you yes. know, uh, Free Jack, of all things. And one of my favourite ones that I used to own on cassette tape burnt off my friend's CD, The Last of the Mohicans soundtrack. Oh, yes. Oh, right, yeah. Which the the six-minute uh, promontory uh, theme was one of the ones I had on a, a, a playlist of things I would play in my uh, headphones before I played online poker just to see it myself in the right frame of mind, just to really pump myself up. And then in 1998, Dark City, which is just oh, stunning. Yeah. absolutely stunning. So he's, he's continuing onwards. I mean, well, there's, up to 2018, is still doing TV movies and documentaries. And, and then I noticed a TV miniseries called Labyrinth, because he also did a little movie called Labyrinth back in the 80s, which is phenomenal. But then he did uh, two episodes for a TV miniseries on Labyrinth, which turned out to actually be about, um, I think it's a medieval one. But I thought that was a nice, weird, ludicrously specific um, uh, <laughs> Circle for him.
0: As an aside, I want to point out because I've got the screen, uh, the uh, record in my hand, that he is not responsible for the song "Don't Bug Me" that plays over
2: the closing credits. <laughs> that's a purely Jimmy Buffett offering. That's not great. The, I actually much prefer "Blue Eyes Are Sensitive to the Light," which yeah, is on the yeah, soundtrack. But only yes, plays a movie on a radio in the background. Uh, Sarah Hickman's one, and it's, that's that's fantastic song. But that "Don't Bug Me" one is is comedy gold. So. <laughs>
1: Actually Doug what what it, it's um so you've had the soundtrack before you've seen the film yeah now you've seen the film with the soundtrack did you react to when the uh, when certain music played or did it feel like well this is an old film
0: uh, an old old friend or i i felt like my i think this is another thing is i had got the impression from the soundtrack That it was probably something a bit more jauntier and youth leaning. Um, And I was quite surprised when it started because it actually starts without score. I had sort of imagined it starting um, with its initial piece of score with kind of a big, like, kind of thing. And it comes in on ambient sound, actually. Um, And so I think for the beginning, I was just a bit um, flat footed by kind of the difference between. And it's, you know, I mean, the score makes sense in context. It's not like it's intrinsically a misleading score or whatever that would be. No,
2: I like that he, he incorporates, like in the South American scenes, you get the South American pipes. But when you head yeah. to America, those pipes become harmonicas. And then when Dell comes mm. along, it, it goes completely country because he's yeah. about as, as redneck a, a guy as you can have in a small town in California.
1: Before we leave arachnophobia, it's just to mention that a film I think about in the same breath, Lake Placid oh, has a... Nice. A very similar kind of comedic, horror-y kind of feel to it. Which, um, yeah, and and an amazing, um, amazing cast. Bridget Fonda, Bill Pullman, Betty White, um, uh, Brendan Gleeson. It's uh, a heck of a lot of fun. Oh, and Oliver Platt, not to forget Oliver Platt. And it's written uh, by and directed by, I think, David E. Kelly.
2: Yeah, that's a, it's a fun flick, that one. That's one I've seen uh, a number of times. Probably once again, just you know, when it came on pay TV, and, you know, it's like, oh, that's always a good time. And it's it, I, I believe it did have a series of of uh, diminishing returns after that. A, a lot of you know, Lake Placid, Lake Placid, two Lake Placid, three, and then I think Lake Placid versus Mega Gator or something. They crossed it over <laughs> to some other. Terrible oh, one! Wow. Yeah, but um, yeah, the original one is—it's just a lot of fun. That one. It's, Absolutely. It's, and once again, Oliver Platt's character has got—he hits the right balance between being a comedic jerk who's not a jerk that you actually want to really want to punch you. You know, he's—he's—he's he's, mm. he's, there is not the nice guy character, but he's—he's he's too likable in that role to be a, a, a character you hate.
1: Absolutely, and it's um, yeah, it's. It's not. Um, it kind of has that. It doesn't play for the gore like Arachnophobia isn't isn't really a gory movie, but it still has a um, a lighter comedic feel to it as well. But it does have scary moments. But Betty White is is great in this too. It's. Uh,
2: yeah, I think one of one of her, probably the it started a bit of a trend of 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 foul-mouthed old ladies that uh, that you know didn't take any shit from from the you know, local authorities <laughs> around because she's and she's hilarious in the part. Will go on the watch list. It was uh,
0: something that <laughs> came out during my max pretension time in the late '90s, when um, good cinema was important cinema.
3: Oh,
1: <laughs> it's it's nice to know that you're you're not pretentious anymore, there, Doug. No, I don't no.
0: Well, I mean, I yeah i mean I, <laughs> I, i'm looking over at a flying guillotine poster so i i mean i think there's limits to uh however pretentious <laughs> you are right now um there is a young version of me that is fucking insufferable by comparison <laughs> uh nice. so let, let's move on to uh film number three Uh, since we're closing in on the 15-hour mark of this podcast, Um, (laughs) which is a film called Warning Sign by a guy named Hal Barwood. And I knew nothing about Hal Barwood, so I um, looked him up. Um, And he's an American who grew up in New Hampshire. His dad ran a local movie theater. Um, He uh, wound up going to USC in the same class as um, George Lucas and uh, worked as an animator on THX 1138. Uh, rewrote the script of the Sugarland Express with his writing partner Matthew Robbins. Um, they would later collaborate on the uh, Bingo Long Traveling All Stars and Motor Kings. MacArthur. Uh, they did an uncredited rewrite on Close Encounters of the Third Kind, and they wrote uh, Jerome Robbins' first two films, Corvette Summer and Dragon Slayer. Uh, and that was the point at which they co-wrote uh, Barwood's debut and also Swan Song, uh, Warning Sign, which was a one and done. Uh, Warning Sign was a critical flop, but uh, we'll get more into that later. But his departure from the film was less about that, and or film industry, excuse me, and more about his desire to pivot into video games, his other childhood passion. He went to work for LucasArts, uh, making games involving in Indiana Jones and Star Wars, as well as original ideas, and then he eventually founded his own gaming company, uh, Finite Arts. He's also a novelist and remains married to his childhood sweetheart, Barbara Ward, Uh, Robbins, meanwhile, directed a few more films, including the legend of Billy Jean and batteries not included before settling into a career screenwriting. Uh, and yeah, there's a bunch of sideways things we can say about Harold Robbins, but that's, or excuse me, Matthew Robbins, but that's less important. Um, Warning, sign. I, I didn't find a lot on the making of it. Um, Unfortunately, there's there's a new Blu-ray out, which would probably have some interviews and might have more, but it's a film that slid under the radar in a lot of ways. Um, one great quote from Hal Barwood on the casting was that we knew we were making a B-picture, but we wanted to have some seriousness involved, and that's why you get uh, Sam Waterston and Kathleen Quinlan in Yafit Kodo uh, in this film. And I'll talk about Craig Safin for a moment, who... Um, had a sort of similar entry into the world of film composition as um the maniac composer uh jay chattery did. Uh Safin uh was born in LA, went to Brandeis thinking he'd be an architect. Uh, tried to make a living as a songwriter. Um, One day he got a call from a friend from his university who married a young film director. He just arrived in LA to attend the American film Institute. He made an independent super 16 millimeter horror film. They needed music for it. Do you know anyone? Seyfren suggested himself, even though he never composed a score that film never released was called the demon's daughter. But the reason this is not just a completely useless story is the director was a guy named John McTiernan. Um, Craig Safin first crossed paths with Barwood on Corvette summer, which is probably how he got the gig on warning sign, but he's probably most famous for the last starfighter. Uh, he had a near brush with genre fame by doing a score for Wolfen, but the score was replaced by James Horner after the director was fired. Uh, he also contributed a track to Michael Mann's thief, uh, which is otherwise scored by Tangerine dream. Uh, weirdly that track only appears in the American cut. Um, Some of Safin's other films include Stand and Deliver, Major Pain, Remo Williams, and uh, Nightmare on Elm Street 4, and uh, some other genre favorites, including Fade to Black, Angel, Roller, Boogie. He's also done the music for dozens of TV shows, most famously Cheers. Um, These days, he seems to have left the film industry behind to focus on his own albums, the most recent of which, Sirens, was inspired by Homer's Odyssey. So, one of the nice things is, yeah, that it seems like the people involved had happy endings. Um, warning sign didn't exactly uh, get a happy ending when it hit box office. as just to quote from the um New York Times review, it had to happen, like the inevitable next step in recombinant DNA research. Warning side merges the new socially conscious technological disaster genre, a la China Sil- Syndrome and Silkwood, with a good old mad scientist monster movie. It's nearly as well crafted as it is confused, a lickety split implausible thriller that never lets its earnestness impede the action. It's corny, predictable, and serviceable. Warning sign is unlikely to start a national debate on biological warfare. It does, however, wow well way the minutes kinetically. Um, And that's kind of the Kevin Thomas for the LA times had a sort of a similar um, cynical mixed uh, review. Um, They have their little um, descriptions at the end, you know, warning sign never bores, but for all its energy and considerable technical finesse, it's never fully engaging either. Um, Anyway, enough with those people. Um, So one of the weird things about owning this record here is that it very much comes across as a sci-fi ish kind of thriller. There's a bunch of stills on the back, which all look like people milling about, um, or huddling in protection or wearing suits. And, um, and the score itself, which is made on a Sinclaver, um, doesn't really, uh, even the, um, things don't actually tip you to the hidden secret of this film. It's also a zombie film. So I was very, (laughs) surprised when that whole side of things went into it um but i really liked it what do you guys think of warning sign
3: well
1: you know how i like to keep my my cards close to my chest so uh, (laughs) fuck those reviewers
2: (laughs) (laughs) oh that's darren's rant for the day fuck you guys
1: (laughs) (laughs) that's the second time i've seen it now um i actually saw it with some some of the cinema crew at my place, and um, about a year or two ago, and we had a, a hoot and a holler of a time, and it was um, just as enjoyable the second time round. I, I really enjoyed it,
2: and I actually enjoyed it I, I started off with my as an opener, kind of went up feels a bit kind of TV movie, but it really kind of sucked me in. And I mean, you've got I mean anything with Yafikoto when you're gonna have you know, a good time because Yafikoto never half asses a performance. And as it got more of a gravitas to yeah, the to the movie very much. But it's still got you've got that that gravitas of Yafikoto and then you've got the very B movie sensibilities as you say it devolves from a a biological horror into a zombie film. And I'm always down for any movie that starts off in one genre and becomes a zombie film. I don't care if it starts off (laughs) as a comedy and you've got a zombie film. I'm pretty much up for that one there. So I I really did enjoy it myself as well. And I probably enjoyed it more than I expected I was going to enjoy it. From watching the trailers, I kind of looked at it and went, looks kind of schlocky, looks like it will be my warehouse. But it, it surprised the heck out of me.
1: And you've got yeah. Richard Dysart as the chief zombie, which is quite a surprise, <laughs> playing that and, kind of yeah. thing. And G.W. Bailey as the most sympathetic of the uh, of the guys um, of the zombies. It's I think one uh, of the who, things that's
0: really striking at the moment is that I'm, and in some ways, I'm glad I waited to watch this when I did because basically the concept is that. There's this research plant in rural America. Um, it seems to be doing something innocuous. A virus breaks out. The uh, Suddenly all the doors to the compound close. It turns out that maybe the place isn't quite as innocent as everybody in the town thought. The government comes in and um, the locals start trying to break into the place to free their friends that are in there. And I think in 2019... The story that's like all these people are trying to get into a place where there's a life threatening virus that could kill lots of people. Um, and we're and they think that's a good idea. Mm. And 2021, I'm like, yeah, that checks out,
2: (laughs) (laughs) true, unfortunately. So,
0: (laughs) yeah, and one thing I kind of did like about it is even within that, you know, they they give every character their own intelligence, like, it isn't just like a horde of stupid rednecks yelling. They're like, actually like kind of demonstrate them being quite talented with their tools and thinking about how to approach things. It's everybody trying to solve a problem. It's just that um, some of their, everybody has their limited perspective. And you see this in the victimization of uh, Kathleen Quinlan's character at an early part, which, you know, it, it kind of, for a while, it seems to be going into sort of a Lord of the flies kind of, for adults territory um, before it takes it, you know, it's more horror kind of turn. Oh, Hello. For each other to talk that time.
2: I've <laughs> cutting each other up all day and it's like, and oh, okay. <laughs> Suddenly
1: we're respectful and you don't like it, Doug. What's up with that?
2: <laughs> one of the things that I'm, I'm going to shoot, because I, one of my Twitter accounts I run as a, a B movie poster board and The poster for Warning Sign, the American poster, is really dull. It's got the biohazard sign and just too many words. Modern man. Science has given the ultimate power to create new forms of life. But with that power comes overwhelming responsibility and danger. Tells you nothing about the film. Just shows that. And then you go to the French and the European posters and they are absolutely phenomenal and i know we are not doing a visual thing here but i'll be putting them up on the twitter account the day that this comes up uh the french one is called contact mortal and it's (laughs) a drawn picture of a uh a smashed uh test tube on a floor with people in silhouette behind being dragged off down a corridor which is phenomenal uh there's another one which i think is uh uh, center so that's the the spanish or the mexican one which is similar but the people are running Apparently towards the smashed uh, 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 substance on the floor, which seems counterproductive. And then there's an absolutely phenomenal <laughs> one, which I can't pronounce, which I think is uh, Check. And it shows two characters in a lift looking like someone's approaching, basically from the zombie's eye point of view. And all three of those sell this movie a shitload better than the biohazard sign and all the words. So marketing does count, I think, sometimes.
1: What we also haven't mentioned is that the um, the characters, despite what they're going through, are having a lot of fun. The dialogue with Jeffrey Duman uh, and and um, Samuel Waterson is is quite light and quite fun, and it's um, it's yeah, it's an enjoyable movie. It it's not a harrowing ride, is it?
0: No, it's. Yeah, it's 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 a film that kind of exists in a between place. And that's, I think, part of the trick of selling it is it's not such a flat out horror movie that, you know, it it would bore the shit out of the 42nd Street crowd, you know, and yet it has some things that don't make it quite, you know, up. Market enough for the Andromeda strain crowd, and that's I think something the reviewers I think both kind of allude to that it's it's you know a very I don't want to say having it both ways, but it's it has ambitions beyond its genre, and yet it still does things in that. And there's a few kind of comedy moments that of you know giving one liner things that seem out of Schwarzenegger movies that kind of keep it from feeling fully elevated. And I think that's I think I think that's good, but I I totally get why a lot of people struggle with that.
2: I do like the fact that it's kind of it sits in between the real compactness of of the Andromeda strain, which I found a chore to get through because it's so scientific, and the say the stand, which you know came out sort of you know uh, seven or eight years before this the book, which makes it this huge world ending event. This is, I mean, it's a smaller piece than that, but it is. It feels like it could become a bigger piece. It's, it's mm. it, it has that potential to really break out and become like a, a you know, something that would threaten all around that that area. But just that, that compact, claustrophobic feel that it actually managed to keep without being so compact that you end up with reams of scientific data, like Michael Crichton did for the Andromeda Strain. I tried reading the book one time, and it's it's like reading a manual. So um, it's <laughs> yeah. yeah, it's it's very even a Jurassic Park when the Michael Crichton is just there is page after page of mm. scientific um, fact that is probably interesting to a certain small amount of people, but I have no idea how Jurassic Park ever got made into a movie when it was as I say a manual on how to make dinosaurs. but warning <laughs> sign—it's once again—it becomes this, this this nice character piece, even when you start throwing in glowing, drooling zombies into it. And it's 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 not complete and utter schlock for people that hate zombie movies, it, I think it would still work quite nicely.
1: Now, there's a um, there's a film made before it, which is similar yet very different, that I don't know if either of you know about, but is well worth a watch, which is Endangered Species. It's directed by Alan Rudolph, of all people, and um, it's uh, starring Robert Urich, Joe Beth Williams, Paul Dooley, Hoyt Axton, and Peter Coyote. Also Dan Hedia in there as well. And it's and I've a, not seen it. It's um about a retired New York cop on vacation in America's West was drawn into a female sheriff's investigation of a mysterious series of cattle killings. So doesn't sound very similar, but there's a conspiracy type thing and mm-hmm. there's the uh, the military and a uh, and a um a lockdown at a um, at a, um, a a science facility as well so there's there's quite a lot of things going on i um i sometimes get the two films confused but it's uh, it's a little bit more serious minded
2: Oddly enough when, it, when we first moved to this movie I, in my brain i completed it with a completely different movie with george kennedy trapped in a, a cave full of bats which, uh, oh, God. which is an entirely different movie, and doesn't even it isn't even called Warning Sign. But I was all prepared to watch George Kennedy fight off bats until I discovered it was not actually the movie that I had uh, in my hand. So um, I was slightly disappointed, and yet probably had a much better time than watching George Kennedy uh, cash yet another mid 1980s paycheck. To be honest, it's not the sort
1: of film you think of when you think of Alan Rudolph either. But it's a um it's it's well worth a look. Endangered Species from 1982.
0: Right. And, and um, I, I just bring... want to say about the soundtrack really quickly, how much oh, yes. I... Is that it was probably my favorite soundtrack going in, and I love um, Safe and Talks a little bit back on the choice of the synclavier because it kind of occupies a space between the synthetic and the natural. And um, from those opening shots um, where you have the beautiful... Hills, and then you have the poison coming down, and the the minor notes sort of seep into it. Um, there's just an acute um, discomfort with the, uh, you know, the the naturalness or an unnaturalness of the voice that's sort of impossible to pin down. That um, yeah, I think really suits the film, even if it. And I think maybe that's also something where it doesn't necessarily have this sort of horror music, uh, big carpentry motifs or something that might propel it a bit later on. But again, add to this sort of sense of it being in this interstitial space between horror and something ostensibly more classic.
2: Yeah, he's quite an experimental composer at times um, in his earlier stuff. So it's, I mean, when you get to, you know, as you say, he's known for the last starfighter, which is, you know, one of those big bombastic Space themes, which you know, the sort of stuff I really love. But he's he's
3: mm.
2: he does really go a lot quite outside the box sometimes in some of the the early ones I've heard of it. So it's it definitely suited the film very much. It very much gave the right atmosphere to it.
1: Excellent. Well, well So the the roundup is uh, definitely the um the film for all the kids is Maniac. Yes, definitely. You get Graham for that one as yep,
2: well. Yep. Get, yeah, get, people, get and, um,
1: Aiden sitting in front of that one. You, it's um, yeah, yep, I'm sure he'll yeah. love it.
2: And if, if people yep. hate Child Services, to can't can't yeah. level three. So <laughs> <laughs> We're I'm sure they'd and make I'm, an exception. That'll be yeah, like yeah, next, I'm next. Bring the, the entire episode full circle here. Um, this uh, warning sign was actually shot in Utah, and you know what other horror movie was uh, shot in Utah? Well, at least partially, Exorcist Two: The Heretic.
1: Oh my, oh, my God. God! It all comes. <laughs>
2: <laughs> Planned it perfectly. No, I didn't. I just worked that out about ten minutes ago. So, uh, nothing <laughs> like doing the research on the fly.
0: Excellent. Um, great. Well, take care. And um, now that we've got Steve out of the well, we um, all right can keep inflicting these on you, and you can only have to suffer at great length and not also at great length with terrible audio quality. So. <laughs> Till next oh, time.
2: We'll have to send some we'll message to sadaka because you know she's going to get lonely down there without me. So
1: sadaka <laughs> oh, yeah, uh, with Su- Sudaku is is um, <laughs>
0: <it's> canceled
1: <laughs> keep her busy. she's down
0: <laughs> Till next time, you can get your dad joke someplace else. I'm sure. <laughs>